Hey, today on Jesus, Sex, and Politics, we have an amazing show for you. David Barton, one of the greatest American historians of our lifetime, joins us in the studio, as well as our good friend Chad Connolly from Faith Wins. Chad and David have joined us here at Life Church for an amazing luncheon where David lays out the biblical history of our nation and what our founding fathers knew to be true. Many people tell us that we're racist in nature, that we are a, a terrible, wicked, evil nation. David unpacks all of that. He dives into what our founders really believed, what was really happening in America in the 1600s, 1700s, and 1800s, and you get to see the divine hand of God leading our nation in a powerful way. You will not want to miss this episode. Hang on, get your notebook out, and be sure to tell all your friends to like, subscribe, and share Jesus, Sex, and Politics so we can get the word out and boldly defend truth in a culture full of lies. Here we go. Hey, welcome to the Jesus, Sex, and Politics podcast. I'm Micah. And I'm Nathan. And here we talk about all the things culture doesn't want to talk about. That will scare you. And it's going to scare the people on the left today because we've got two amazing guests in the studio. This is exciting. This is super exciting. We have with us David Barton and Chad Connolly. You may know those names. Guys, thanks so much for being with us today. Welcome. Honored to be here, brother. Honored and proud of what you guys are doing to lead the way here. Yeah, for, thank for sure. you. Thank you. So, so Chad, we'll start with you here real quick. You've started an organization called Faith Wins. Yep. You were the former Republican chairman of South Carolina. That's right. Um, and, uh, and you've got a heart to see the church engage in politics. And then you've teamed up with an amazing American historian, David Barton. And yep. uh, David, you've, you've helped like pave the way for guys like me and Nathan to go out and defend Christian biblical truth in the public square. I mean, honestly, I've gone, I've studied your works and you just, you point to history, you point to what our founders knew to be true about the word of God. And it is such a arsenal of tools that give, that you give guys like me when we're going out and battling the leftists who want to make us a secular progressive uh, nation. So I just want to say thank you to both of you for what you're doing. So, but why don't you tell us about what's going on? We, we've got you here at Life Church today yeah. for a great event. Tell us about the event. Tell us about what you're doing with the American Restoration Tour. Yeah, man. And really, the American Restoration Tour is a culmination of my entire uh, adult career and life of just being committed to the idea that pastors are the way back for America. Amen. If we would empower pastors, I know there's some that just hide behind the pulpit, but there are many who just don't have access to the American history truth of God's role in our nation and the importance. There wouldn't be an America. There wouldn't be religious liberty without what the founders did and took from the Bible. So this, uh, this year, we're going to end up around 130 to 131 meetings in 23 states. Wow. Uh, wow. So we're we're moving and grooving. We leave here and go to Michigan, then Ohio. Uh, last week, we were in uh, Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, South Carolina. week before that, we are in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Maryland. We've been all over the place because if we can just let the church know their proper role in a biblical worldview, we don't retract from, we don't eliminate some area just because people who hate our God tell us you shouldn't be involved. And all we're trying to do is I'm trying to introduce this guy and his research, his findings, the documentation of the role of of pastors and leaders, and frankly, how do we be Matthew 5, salt and light if we're not engaged in this culture? This is our fault. There's so many people who are Christians and even non-believers who know something's wrong. They know this is a mess we are in, and what I'm trying to make them realize and what Dave and I are committed to doing is, look, this is our responsibility where we are, and we're just trying to wake up the church. Amen. That's amazing. So, David, 
tell me kind of your your thoughts as you as you go around on this tour. Uh, what what's the church doing in America? I mean, the Capital C Church are they waking up? Do you see people getting engaged? Are they excited, or is it still a really tough battle? Yeah, it's still a tough battle because what you're fighting with is not necessarily truth. Now, for us, truth is the most important thing to me. Uh, if I've been told that the founders are a bunch of atheist agnostics, Jews who didn't want Christians involved, if that's true, then that's one thing. But what if that's not true? What what if that's all false? Should I be involved? Should I be engaged? And this is where people come to a real conflict with their own worldview. You've got a lot of Christians who think we should not be engaged, and that's not what Christians do. Okay, if I can show you, for example, a book from 1690 called Two Treatises of American Government done by a theologian that references the Bible more than 1,500 times showing why Christians should be involved in government. Do you want to tell me that Christians shouldn't be involved in government? And if so, on what basis? Because it's not a biblical basis. So now we get down to, does the Bible guide my life? Does truth guide my life? Does history guide my life? Or does my opinion guide my life? And and those are really important questions. And, And that's why a lot of folks now, a lot of Christians are not engaged. And even if you can show that they should be engaged, well, I just don't want to. Well, that's a whole different debate than whether you should be engaged. And so what you find is, you know, as as we talk, we're finding really good responses. People are pretty shocked at what they didn't know. Um, They think they're well-informed as Americans. We tend to think that. We've got access to everything. It's just that, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here. And right here, you've got a book. It's a reprint from 1921 called The New England Pulpit and the American Revolution by Alice Baldwin. She was dean of students, uh, of female students at Duke University. And she just goes through and shows you the preachers and how they founded America. Now, does that matter or not? Well, if if she's right, and if history's right, then maybe preachers ought to be involved in the political arena because we had been at the beginning. It's what made us special. So for us, it's all about truth and, and exposing people to that, and then people have to make a choice at that point. Do I want to go with what's true, or do I want, do I want to go with what I believe? And that's a big choice. That's good. Yeah. When we were out in San Diego, and you walked through the Declaration of Independence, and and you show that Here's here's taxation without representation. Yes, it's there. I think that's number 17, right? Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but look at all the other ones. And then you went back and showed us for 15 years prior to that, here's the sermons being preached in the pulpits. Yeah. And that's that's what births America. Yeah. It's the pulpits on yeah. fire, thundering that births America. That was I, I don't think the average person knows that. I think the deception of the enemy is to tell preachers, oh no, just focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. And and that is, you know, that that's all that you're supposed to talk about as as a Christian believer, not all the rest of it that, that has to do with morality and the way God wants us to live and thrive and multiply. And 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 you know, they're told a deception that even the preachers are buying. Well, Nate, one of the things that has always struck me, and I don't even use the word Christian anymore. I don't like talking about being a Christian. I talk about whether you're biblical or not. That's right. Because right now, a Christian is anything they want to be. They, they self-define, but biblical is defined by the Bible. And one of the really significant things I think most Christians miss, because we're not most Christians are not Bible students, and they should be, um, the, the practice, in, and we'll talk about this today, but the practice in America, including in public schools up until 1963, was that Americans read through the Bible from cover to cover once a year. Yep. Now, find wow. people today who do that. That's not real common. But because they did, if you, if you think back to what happened in Israel, um, God had his people in Egypt, and he didn't want them there anymore. And through, so through dramatic miracles, he got them out. 
But the problem he had with those people was they'd been in slavery for 400 years. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is you think like a slave, you act like a slave, your expectations are like a slave. When he got them out and they were free, they kept saying, we want to go back. It's just so much easier back in Egypt where everybody mm -hmm. takes care of us. No, 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 you're, you're free. You're going to be a free nation. And he couldn't get them to think right, so he stopped them at the mountain, gave them the Ten Commandments, we know, but he gave them 613 laws at the same time. The Ten Commandments were part of 613. And it was everything that you would need to know to be a nation that could function. And they became the greatest nation in the history of the old world. But God gave them all these laws that dealt with sexuality, that dealt with politics and government and immigration and consanguinity and criminal justice and due process. The Bible covers everything. That's how they become a great nation. I mean, taxation. My goodness, the Bible talks about capital gains tax. It talks about minimum wage. It talks about the progressive tax. It talks about the flat tax. It talks about all these different kinds of taxes. Try to find a Christian today who knows that. So, yeah. you know, try to find a pastor today who exactly. knows that's that. That's right. Yeah. But that's exactly why they did these kind of sermons back in the day. They actually read the book. And when they read the book, they saw, oh, yeah, here's what the Bible says about whatever the issue was. And today, man, we think, well, no, Christians don't do that. Yes, we do. We do the whole Bible. I love in, in your book, uh, in, just in the beginning, as people were, you know, recommending the book, they talked about how history is memory. Mm -hmm. And that was such a powerful, just a, a, an easy way to say that. How many people would, would say that we don't have need to remember where we've been yesterday and the day before, you know, the idea of erasing history or rewriting it. it it's that's the, the wickedness. Yeah. That, like you got to go back and you go through the stories of scripture and they find the law and they re, and they remember you know when they're doing reconstruction and they're and they're like oh my goodness here's a book that we haven't been living by mm -hmm. well you, know? you said something important nathan a little bit ago the enemy's always used deception and the the sad thing is too many people who stand behind a pulpit or claim christ as savior have fallen for it i, I don't get home very much right now we're in the middle of this tour we're gone a lot i, I teach a sunday school class i'm a deacon in a little baptist church in newberry south carolina newberry south carolina red red conservative down the street and my pastor and i send these silly church signs each other all the time this one took the cake and i actually went back at night when i flew in from being with david and cheryl and went and took a picture and i mailed it to the pastor because it quoted winnie the pooh the most important things aren't things at all winnie the pooh and so i just thought here's the problem is the deception is the of this pastor is so deep he'll point people to winnie the pooh there's a book with 66 individual books that actually has wisdom we could point people to jesus christ and to god and the truth but but we've chosen to point him to a cartoon character that nobody remembers from the 60s. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, and you're so that's right. Stunning. It is stunning. I mean, you're the 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 decay of the American society rests in the, at the foot of the pulpit. Amen. I love Charles Finney's quote. He said, "If the devil is ru ruling in uh, the halls of legislation, it is no one to blame but that of the pulpit." True. And uh, yeah. and that was you know in the mid 1800s when they were fighting the slavery battle. And he said, it's, "Slavery exists in America because the church hasn't stood up and and got rid of it yet." And, and so, and, yeah. and it's a real problem because it's you know think of a person with amnesia. I mean, they just, they wander around, they have no purpose, they don't know what they're yep. there for, they just, they just flounder. There you a go. nation with amnesia is the same thing, and that's why history is your memory. Yeah. That's yeah. your memory. So just like as a person, you can think of the memories when I was four and when I was six and what we did in second grade and whatever. Those memories keep you grounded. If you're a nation without history, and, and I'll just give you a good example why history matters. 
Um, let's take all the stuff that's gone on with critical race theory, 1619 Project, et cetera. And as we know, America's the worst nation in the world on race, and nobody's ever had as bad. Okay, time out. Let's do a little quick flashback here. When was the first black person elected to office in America? And it's 1641. A white community in Maryland elected Matthias D'Souza. He served in the Maryland legislature. Mm-hmm. And in 1641. Wow. <laughs> and by the time we get to the Civil War, we're talking hundreds of black individuals elected in America. By the time we get through the Civil War, we're talking thousands of black individuals and they all have names they're all significant we just don't cover them anymore Mm. now let's compare that when is let's take great britain great britain they point to is this great anti-slavery nation great britain when's the first time a black was elected office in great britain and the answer is 1987 (laughs) Wow. wow when's the first time a black is elected office in russia it's 2010 and so here we've been at 1641, and we're the racist nation. We're the bad. That's what happens if you have amnesia. If you yeah. have no clue of your memory, if you don't know who guys like Wentworth Cheswell is, and if you don't know who Peter Salem and Prince Estabrook and John Sis and all these black heroes, just because we don't teach them today doesn't mean we didn't have black heroes. We yeah. definitely did, and we just don't know them. Well, and it's, such a, it's an issue of identity. Yeah. We don't know who we belong to. That, that, that the Lord had a special plan and purpose for America going all the way back, see it, see it through Christopher Columbus's yeah, you know, lens right. and, and what his original purpose was, of course. Wait now, Christopher Columbus, <laughs> that's the bad guy. Oh, <laughs> right, right. What are you doing, Nathan? Yeah, yeah. The, but if, if, you, if you look and you okay, maybe the guy's not perfect, but go back and, and read the story. I love your book, man. I was just, <laughs> everybody... At so Life Search, a, you better go get this book. It's and called read it. it's called the American Story. What a book! And it's with David Barton and his son Tim, who we've met Tim down in Dallas too, and he's phenomenal. I mean, he's you know, I mean, you're good, David, but Tim's like oh, Tim's he, he's really good. <laughs> yeah, I, I learned a lot from Tim. It's, it's great. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. But, but you know, with Columbus, we erected six hundred statues to the dude. Mm-hmm. Name anybody else we've erected 600 statues to. And we, wow. did we erect that because we celebrated genocide and slavery and racism? Because that's what we're told about Columbus Day. Or is it possible that there's more to the story <laughs> and that people in previous generations, because we can't say every previous generation is racist because we actually had a civil war to stop that. Yeah. So, but they erected statues to Columbus even back then. So what in the heck don't we know today about Columbus? We get all these sound bites and we get all these memes and social media posts. And, no, no, no. The, there's a story to the dude, and we don't even know that. Nate, that's what you're alluding yeah, to. Yeah, you know, even as you were explaining in that, that there's there's a group of people that he says, these are awesome natives. Boy, these these people were, were great to work with. These other people were cannibals, yeah. and, yes. and, and, their, and their towns were full of bones because they would have babies and then eat the children, you know, from these women that they captured. Like if the average American knew that story yep. they would fight a little harder for columbus day no you know they, they would fight a little harder to to don't no, let's not erase our history yeah i love uh when you talked about the the concept of and uh, by, by the way let, let me just point out that's what when they say columbus is a genocide maniac that's what he's talking about because columbus wiped out the cannibals who wiped out his men and his friends. He saved all the native tribes in the Caribbean by wiping out the cannibals. And if you want to call that genocide, I'm all for it. You know, that, that just saved a whole bunch of native right. tribes, but nobody ever covers that. Oh, he, he wiped out cannibals. He, they never say it's cannibals, but that's the genocide they're talking about. Yeah. That's a whole different thing when you know the rest of that story. Yeah. yeah. That part where you talked about coincidence mm. and, and you said coincidence is not in the ancient Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. 
right? But that you're supposed to read the Bible seeing God's hand working all the way through yes. it. And the idea that you're going you're gonna to not have uh, the history lesson of America, the miracles. I actually preached about uh, George Washington's escape. Mm. I was preaching on David's escape, and I, I brought up George Washington's escape, that God rolled that fog in, and they were able to get off. That. We wouldn't be sitting here as American right. citizens had this day not gone differently. That's the way we read the Bible, and you're supposed to, realizing, and I didn't want anybody to misunderstand, Jesus Christ and him crucified is the most important part of of the gospel, but you're supposed to see God's hand in all of our history, and and to not read the, 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 the American history the same way is to not know your identity, not know where you began. You have amnesia. I've got a question uh, for you, David. Um, out of all the pastors in American history, who is your favorite pastor? And oh why? man, I got to say John Wise. Okay, John wow. Wise, what a dude! Uh, this guy was in the 1680s in Massachusetts, and British oppression was really high. And the guy was—he um, was a—he was a powerhouse. He was a strong man back in the day, and he had really long hair, you know, down shoulder length. And he—he's a pastor. But he's the first guy to start preaching about taxation without representation is tyranny. He's the first guy to start talking about inalienable rights, uh, the consent of the governed, uh, all these things we have in the Declaration he talked about. And, and so as the British tried to get him to shut up, they imprisoned him, and he got louder in prison. And, I mean, he just let us be. Here, here, here's a good example of the guy. He's, he's a pastor, but he's a physical specimen, too. I mean, and the guy is is a tough dude. And so he's no wimp. And he was known as a master wrestler in Andover, Maryland. And there was a guy, Captain John Chandler, who's on a ship. He's a ship captain, really rough dude. He hears about Wise. He thinks he's a wrestler. I'll go show him. And so he gets over to Wise's house and he prods him. Let's wrestle. Let's get in the match again. And Wise, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah, let's do it. And he just keeps pushing. And Wise is an old man at this point. He's got white hair. He's way up in years. And finally, he gets pushed into this wrestling battle. And so the battle, the wrestling match starts and he quickly picked up John Chandler over his head, walked to the fence, and threw him outside the yard. <laughs> Just threw him over the yard. Wow. <laughs> and so th- this young, you know, this young buck, he thinks he's tough. He, he gets up. He brushes himself off. He says, um, Pastor Wise, uh, I'll be on my way as soon as you throw my horse over the fence. <laughs> <laughs> that's, oh, that's good. And, you know, th- those are the kind of guys I love because th- there's there's this image uh, about, you know, pastors and they're pretty wimpy. No, uh, no, 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 no. Th- these guys are, they are really cool guys. Or, you know, even John Peter Gaber Muhlenberg, who led 314 out of his church to war. He becomes a, a major general, leads his church out to defend their rights. Those are the guys I really like. But John Wise, is a, he's the intellectual basis of the American Revolution, and he's just a, a man's man. Okay, so and you hit on John Peter Muhlenberg there for a second. He's kind of the one where we get that image of the Black Robe Regiment. That's right. right? Yeah. But I didn't know the story of his brother oh, yeah. until recently. And then I was just in Washington a few weeks ago. We were standing in the in the we were in the, the Capitol downstairs, kind of where all the statues are. Yeah. And um and we see Frederick Muhlenberg, the first speaker of the house mm-hmm. so it would have been john peter's brother but tell did, us did you see the john peter statue i don't know their story i, I, I want to hear yeah it. i didn't see the john peter statue where's that one at they it, moved it, it lower. it's in the it's yeah. what they call the crypt it's okay, down in yeah. the basement so okay. 
his so, statue there. Okay, so I think Fredericks was was there, and I know I saw Fred, Fredericks, but I don't know if I saw John Peters. Well, but tell us the story of John Peter and Frederick, and why this is so important in a in from the pastoral context. Yeah, what happens is, as was very common back then, uh, John Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg was also a member of the legislature as well as being a pastor, and it was very common for pastors to be part of the legislature. And at that point in time, the legislature meets in, of all times, the legislative session for Virginia is in December and January of every year. So they meet two months a year. And I don't know why they do it across the year, but they did. And so in, in December of 1775, in January 1776, Pastor Muhlenberg is down at the legislature. But this is after we've had Lexington and Concord, and Virginia's had the gunpowder incident, and the British are getting really really feisty and and taking rights away and ignoring their own bill of rights and violating ours. And so he, when he finishes the session, he hops on a horse and he rides back to Woodstock, Virginia. It's about uh, probably 120 miles. So, you know, that's several days in the saddle. He gets back home just in time to preach the Sunday morning service. So on January 21st, 1776, he gets in the pulpit and he chose to preach from Ecclesiastes um, 3. It's it's everything. There's a time and a season. And the pulpits back then were elevated. That was the PA system. So they're sitting six, eight feet off the floor. You can look down to the congregation. You can They can all hear you speak from that elevated position. So he's in the pulpit, and like every other preacher, he had on his black robe. Catholic, Protestant, black preacher, white preacher, all wore black robes. That's just common. So he's preaching that day, and as he goes through Ecclesiastes, he says there's a time of Time to be born, time to die, works his way through it. He gets to the last verse that says there's a time of peace and there's a time of war. And he closed his Bible and he looked at the people and said, brethren, this is no longer a time of peace. This is a time of war. And he told them what was going on with all the other things in the other colonies. And so then he bowed his head and had a dismissal prayer. But instead of doing what he always did, and as he was an Episcopal Episcopal pastor and a Lutheran pastor. He had a German-speaking Lutheran church, an English-speaking Episcopal church. Instead of dismounting the pulpit, going off to the vestry room, taking off his, his robe, he just stood right in front of the congregation, started disrobing in front of the congregation. They've never seen that before. What's this all about? <laughs> and when he jerked off his robe in a dramatic flourish, he's standing there in the full-dress uniform of a colonel in the, in the Continental Army. So he's standing there in military uniform. He's got his sword, his pistol, his rifle, everything with him. He then dismounts the pulpit in full dress uniform, and he marches down the aisle. He said, brethren, we came to this country to practice our freedoms, and if we don't get involved, we're not going to have any freedoms left to practice. Now, who's going with me to defend our freedoms? And so 314 men got up. They met him at the back of the church. They became the 8th Virginia Regiment. And so he's there all the way through the, the revolution, all the way to Yorktown from before it starts till after it's over. He becomes a major general, the same rank as, as George Washington. If anybody ever goes to see, um, if you go see, for example, uh, Valley Forge, you'll see the Muhlenberg Barracks. He was through Valley Forge. His guys built those barracks to, to survive that tough winter. Now, what's interesting, he had a brother who was also a preacher because their father um, their father founded the Lutheran Church in America. So his brother is, is preacher at Christ Church, also called a swamp church because it was in the swamp of New York City. And so his brother, when he when his brother in New York, who's Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, hears what Peter has done, Frederick writes him a letter and said, this is wrong. You, you're a pastor. You're supposed to stay in the pulpit. You're not supposed to get involved in this stuff. <laughs> Sounds oh, familiar. Yeah, it does. It sounds familiar. familiar. Okay. He, he's the typical 21st century <laughs> yeah. pastor. He's, yeah. the, he's yeah. your yeah. great American. He's... He said, no, I shouldn't do that. So Peter writes him back and says, yeah, I'm a pastor. He said, 
but I'm a citizen as well. I have a duty to God and the country. He said, and by the way, if it wasn't for people like me defending your right to be in the pulpit, you wouldn't have the, the liberty to be in your pulpit. Yeah. So it's guys like me who are defending that. And so Frederick got that letter and just dismissed it and said, yeah, you're crazy. And so it's interesting that in 1777, the British arrived in New York City. And when they arrived in New York City, there's 19 churches in New York City, and one of them was Frederick's church. And Frederick, they went to his church and burned his church down. Just flat. They, they took all 19 <laughs> churches. They burned 10 of them. And he's standing outside his burning church, and he has this epiphany. Yeah. You know, he says, Maybe oh, I need to get involved oh, after no. all. Yeah. So he gets involved. He actually writes the original constitution for the state of, of Pennsylvania, 1776. He becomes speaker of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. He, he goes on to be the U.S. Speaker of the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. First one, right? First one. Yeah. First Speaker of the House. And if you look at the Bill of Rights, our first 10 amendments of the Constitution, they're signed at the bottom by John Adams and, and Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. So, Pastor, that is amazing. <laughs> what a story. What an I epiphany, mean, you know? It gives me hope for pastors today, yes. right? You know, like the, yeah. it might take it might take a burning of a, you know, you know, some uh, catastrophic event yeah. that happens, but but it does. I think the Lord is waking people up. Uh, okay, so we've we just got a few more minutes here. And then, um, and what I want to do real quick is I'm going to, I'm going to have Chad at the end here, talk about like what people can do to get yep. involved and in, in locally. But before we do that, just briefly, I got, I got one more story I need you to tell our listeners, uh, Thomas Hooker. Okay. Pastor Reverend Thomas Hooker, who was the, uh, he's credited for being the father of American democracy. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people know that our constitution literally came from a, a sermon. And, yeah. and so t- tell, tell the listeners about yeah, and it's interesting. Hooker is one of the founders, Thomas Hooker, Reverend Hooker, is one of the founders of Connecticut. And back in that day, the the covenant concept was really, really strong. We don't have that concept in America now. You know, and for a great example, marriage is no longer covenant. Uh, prior to 1968, there was no no-fault divorce in America. When you got married, it was a lifetime, and, and that was it. There's no way out. Uh, do you know why, if you get divorced today, you'll have what's called a bill of divorcement. You know why it's called a bill of divorcement? Because it took an act of the legislature to get a divorce wow. prior to 1968. Wow. So it, it took a bill going through the legislature. That's how rare divorces were. And so we had this covenantal thing that when we, it's like covenant with God, all the covenants in the Old Testament with Abraham and Noah, it's a lifetime covenant. God's going to keep his covenant and, and it's a lifetime. And that's the way marriage was. And that's the way Americans thought about contracts. They, you didn't have an out clause. Today, you can break any contract you want. You've always got an attorney that can break a contract. That was never the thinking. So get out of current modern thinking. Go back to biblical thinking. When you gave your word, um, in Psalm 15, David says, Lord, who's going to abide with you? Who's going to dwell in your holy hill? Those that give their word and don't break it. Wow. And, and that's, that's the covenant. So when they get to Connecticut, Reverend Hooker preaches a sermon to them. And he has the whole colony there in front of him. He says, now, he says, here's God's word. Are we going to covenant with God to be a Christian colony? And he asked, and he took a vote. And he said, this is what it means. And he went through three things, that if you're going to covenant with God, here's what your lifestyle has to be, here's what your behavior has to be. And he went through everything, and they all voted unanimously to to start that colony as a Christian colony. This is what they're going to do. They're going to honor God with their life, their behavior. And so at that point in time, he then writes the Constitution for Connecticut. 
and that is the first constitution ever written in the United States, which is why if you go to Connecticut, on their license plate it says the Constitution State. It's not because of the U.S. Constitution. It's because of the first constitution in America, and that was a great model for what the Founding Fathers did later when we wrote the U.S. Constitution. But when you, when you look at stuff like Thomas Hooker, who, who really is the, the father of the American Republic in that sense, that's what happened with pastors everywhere. The same thing happened with New Haven, um, with, with Reverend Davenport. He did the same thing. He took the people through that, that same covenant concept and making a pledge. You had the same thing with the pilgrims, Governor Bradford and Elder Brewster. Others took them through that covenant. You're making a lifetime commitment here, and this is what you're doing, and there's no out to this. Are you sure you want to do this? And they committed to it, and that's how America was founded was as a covenant nation. And so there's a couple of political science professors down at University of Houston who've come out with a book on the American covenants. And you read those early documents, and it all says covenants. Wow. So we, we were not into breaking our word. This was between us and God. When you took an oath of any kind, this is why we say, so help me God, when we take oaths, even in court today, because we're, we're making that oath to God. He is really concerned about his word. Uh, Deuteronomy 10 says you shall take oaths in his name. So that's the American founding, man. We're we're pretty wimpy today. We yeah. don't keep our wow. word. As the we're Lord just, lives, yeah, yes. that's right. The way that's the Scripture exactly. says it. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What a what an amazing story. I, I love it. Thank you so much for just what you're doing in America, David and and Chad. I want to jump to you here just as we close yep. uh, this part. Um, uh, tell us about um, what Faith Wins is doing and how you're just kind of taking back that uh, political mantle uh, yeah. and and seeing us move back into electing people who follow biblical values. Amen. Well, look, we got to quit quitting, you know, and we got to stay engaged. Uh, Dr. Uh, Jerry Falwell said in the late 80s, early 90s, Christians win, they quit, they lose, they quit. We got to quit quitting. We got to stay active. We got to be about doing the work of the Lord. We got to be engaged in the culture in every way, shape, and form. So if people want to go and get involved, faithwins.org, F-A-I-T-H, faithwins, W-I-N-S, dot org. We've got how-to videos. We don't need anybody to charge the beach at D-Day right now. Thank the Lord we're not having to charge the beach at D-Day. But can you register everybody in your church to vote? And as soon as the pastor says, well, we don't do politics, ask them, do they do Bible? Just, can we just do the Bible? We're I'm afraid that politics. some pastors probably wouldn't even say they yeah, do Bible. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think you're right. But I believe if we can put them on the spot, especially a congregant who says, look, let's register everybody to vote and let's tell them to vote biblical values. That's yeah. the two asks. That's, That's right. it. You want to do a voter registration drive? We got all the how-to videos. You've been a part of that, Micah. If you want to do it, be a poll worker, we're actively recruiting poll workers and watchers. Christian eyeballs on the process. It ought to be easy to vote and hard to cheat. We want to be a part of the solution to that. And if it wasn't for Faith Wins, uh, Governor Yunkin probably would not have pulled it out in Virginia a year ago because you guys you guys were instrumental in doing that, getting people to go to the polls, work the polls that had Christian values that were people of integrity, and then also the voter drives and registrations that you were doing. So that was a – even Governor Yunkin has credited Faith Wins for he's been very his victory. Generous. Yeah, yeah he's awesome. been very yeah. generous. We, we found 77,000 people who never voted in churches, 312 churches. We measured it. Wow. And, and he won by 65,000. We don't know if we made a difference or not. We didn't tell them who to vote for or how to vote, but we told them, register everybody in your church. Don't leave a stone unturned. Make sure they vote biblical values. 312 churches did voter registration. What if a 1,000 churches in the state of Indiana did voter registration every year, ongoing, all the time? Everybody turned 18. Everybody moved. Everybody never registered before. Let's make sure they vote biblical values. We'll take this nation back for God. I love it. And I'll throw one thing in if I may. Yeah. Because 
we're really told in the Bible to be salt and light. And light is letting light shine. When light shines in darkness, it scares darkness away. One of the things the 312 churches did was they had 1,343 people said, we want to be poll watchers. We want to see what's going on. They identified 5.2% of the votes they looked at as being fraudulent. Wow. Now, when you take 5.2% out, that'll change an election. Right now, we've got stuff going up in Michigan and just found a guy this week, um, a guy named Jason Daniel. Turns out he voted twice in 2020. Now, that's not good. But Jason Daniel was born in 1850. We're talking Civil War dude here, and he voted in 2020. Wow. That's okay. a problem. Wanna, what's that guy been uh, doing to stay alive? I want to wait found the view. where he cast his ballot. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We're, we're going to Michigan tomorrow. We're looking for Jason. Uh, yeah. well, I've never talked to somebody 172 what years old. What longevity? But see, that's what Christian eyeballs will do. And yeah. there was actually three clerks in Virginia that when Christians showed up to just watch, they, they quit because they didn't want anybody watching them. That wow. tells you something. So just being oh, light. Yeah. We talk about being salt, but just be light. Just yeah, show up and right. let the light shine. I love it. Just, yeah. it's, it's huge. I love it. I love it. Well, we're, if you're listening to this, we, we're, uh, we've got Chad and Dave, and they're going to get ready to do an amazing presentation here at Life Church for luncheon today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to tag this on, tag that on to the, this podcast. So just stick around, and, and you'll, you'll hear what uh, Chad and David have to say from the stage. But that's what we're doing at Life Church with Nathan and I. And, Guys, I and, wish yeah. this didn't have to end. I mean, it's, I, I, it's I amazing. Am, first off, I'm just, just so grateful to you for yeah. coming. Thank you. Oh, thank and thank you, you for, for, for what you do to empower us because we know that we have to stand up as pastors. You know, it, it just, you, you have loaded the magazines of what we are, are capable of firing back against the wickedness in our culture. And I can't thank you enough for giving us yeah. that kind of ammunition. We're proud of you guys. Uh, likewise. So we're just humbled to have you here and, and we're going to see God do incredible things we know going forward. All right, so stay tuned. We are going to have the part two of this episode with David and Chad, and they are going to be blessing the Life Church community in the luncheon. Uh, David's going to give a whole presentation on God's amazing divine providence in our great nation. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll have part two here up shortly. Check it out. This is Nathan from Jesus, Sex, and Politics, and I'm talking to all of those of you who have a friend that you know is offended about everything. Listen, help them to come out of the bondage that they're in. Like us, share us, or subscribe, Jesus, Sex, and Politics, because when you do, you might help free somebody from the terrible, terrible tyranny of the mind. Hey, welcome to the Jesus, Sex, and Politics podcast. I'm Micah. I'm Nathan. And here we talk about all the things the culture doesn't want to talk about. And that might scare you. In the last episode, we got to hear from David Barton and Chad Connolly in our Jesus, Sex, and Politics recording studio. But now we're going to move it out to the stage. And David and Chad put on this 
incredible luncheon just the other day, and we want to bless you guys with this. You're not going to want to miss this. This is a lot of material. Uh, David covers so much ground in our history. Um, it's a little bit on the longer side, but I think you will be so dialed in. Have a pen and paper there. Rewind this. Listen to this uh, part of the podcast over and over again. It will give you the tools to be able to defend that America is a nation rooted in biblical truth. Whenever those secular progressives come at you and say, we're not a Christian nation, there is no place for faith in our culture, you can look at them and say, actually, this is what our history is, and this is what our founders and framers knew to be true about success in the American dream. And that's that's going to be what today is all about. It's giving you the tools to be able to defend truth in a culture full of lies. So here we go. Let's check it out. Hope you're blessed. Hello, everyone. How are you doing this afternoon? You guys good? This is good to be here. We're excited to have you. Thank you so much for coming out to the American Restoration Tour with Chad Connolly and David Barton. If you know anything about American history, I'm sure you you know the name David Barton, and it is an honor to have him with us. Um, we want to just, again, just thank you for being here. All of the food that you're eating is, it's it's American Restoration. It's it's Chad Connolly and Faith Wins. They, they purchased that. That's how much they believe in what they're doing here. So give it up for faith wins you know at Life Church we are not afraid to jump into our civic responsibility as the church as the church of Jesus Christ and and we know uh, that God has called us to do that uh, we look at our, our founding we see that all throughout America's history that the church was leading the charge for liberty and we know liberty is not man's idea it's God's idea and so that's why we do events like this at Life Church that's why we partner with Turning Point Faith and and Faith Wins and people like David Barton so that's 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 our heart is we want to make sure that the church in America is the is the bulwark it's the wall that protects against tyranny that wants to totally destroy the liberties and freedoms that God has given us um, but one of the ways we do that is we have to get educated and that's what faith wins is all about and that's what David Barton is all about so I'm going to uh, invite up to the stage uh, faith wins founder Chad Connolly Chad's a friend of mine he's a former Republican chairman of, of South Carolina and he is doing doing amazing things to get the church uh, educated on how to take back our elections. And uh, so would you please give it up as Chad Connolly comes and shares. Thank you, brother. Y'all give Pastor Micah and Pastor Nathan a hand. I appreciate them. Y'all have awesome pastor leadership. And uh, boy, we're missing that in our nation, aren't we? We really are missing pastoral leadership and truth throughout the country. We're in a battle for truth right now, are we not? And uh, David and I and Cheryl, I know you've met her out there. We are just honored to be in Indiana. We uh, were in Wisconsin yesterday and we leave here today and we do three of these in Michigan tomorrow and tomorrow night head over to Ohio, do a couple there. We are, I think this is around meeting 100, 102 since February. We'll end up doing around 100. 131 of these in 23 states. I wanted to do 22 in 22, but my, so my, my word doesn't work out. We're going to do 23 states in 22 because 23 states mattered an awful lot. And uh, we're just honored to be here. We're going to show you a real quick video to kind of tee this up and introduce the concept of what we're trying to accomplish with Faith Wins. But I really do appreciate your pastors, their leadership, and their truth telling. So David, click that button. Let's show this video. What would happen if just four to five percent of those 30 to 40 million non-voting Christians 
got off the sidelines, registered to vote, and showed up at the polls. The church will have a voice. My name is Chad Conley. When I founded Faith Wins, it was to spread the truth that God's role in America is irreplaceable. Faith wins when people of faith vote their values. Our mission is laser-focused on educating, activating, and mobilizing faith leaders, providing them with the tools, the resources, and the messaging to leverage their impact in the political and the governmental arenas. We cultivate, develop relationships with pastors who share the whole counsel of God who stand for truth. In just a few short years, we've engaged with over 50,000 faith leaders from all 50 states. We've done hundreds of meetings with some of America's leading congressmen, senators, political thought leaders, pastors, and more. And, and most importantly, we've actually registered over 1 million new evangelical voters during an unprecedented time, an unparalleled success, and all accomplished with just a part-time team. People ask me all the time, what's the secret? It's God's ordained from the pulpit to the pews, committed to faith, family, and freedom. Because with Him, all things are possible. This, 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 this is our 1776 moment. Now more than ever, America's founding principles that were built on biblical values are under attack. The battle for the soul of our nation has never been greater than it is today. God has commanded us as his children to be salt and light. America's great awakenings and revivals have always begun in the local church. People of faith, do not underestimate your influence. You can influence policy decisions and elect public servants with a grounded biblical view who will stand for religious freedom. Support traditional marriage and the family. Defend and support Israel. A voice for the unborn. People who will defend our democracy and have secure elections. If believers won't step up to the plate and get involved, who will? 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 You know, it's really not about politics or party or politicians or personality. It's about policies and principles that most closely align with our biblical worldview, from the courthouse to the state house to the White House and beyond. I believe every election matters, but boy, does this one matter more than maybe anyone in our lifetimes. You know, we're going to choose a direction for our nation. Are we going to go to the godless and the heathen and the anything goes, no boundaries? Are we going to restore us a republic, as the pastor buddies said on the video? And I'll give you a little bit of background on me and why somebody from South Carolina standing in Indiana. I grew up in a little town called Prosperity, South Carolina. It's a big place, home of four or five or 600 now. We actually did the tally the other day because my wife kept saying, it's bigger than that. So there's like 1,100 voters in my town, but I tell them that's just counting the dogs and the cats. But uh, we have a traffic light now. Sometimes there's cars there. And uh, I grew up, had a drug problem growing up. My daddy drove me to church and drove me to youth group. And it wasn't my idea. My dad did not have time out. He had wear out. It was belt clear and loop time. Here comes Bruce. And you were terrified, right? And um, after a while, your brain and your behind have a serious conversation. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And so 
My dad's still my hero. He's 83. He's a, he's a great curmudgeon. He's a great old guy, man. He'll tell you about life. And, but uh, if I can be one-tenth of the man my dad's been, I'll have lived a pretty good life. And he taught me how to follow the Lord and, and how to be a leader and how to be a godly husband. And that's what I've tried to do my entire life. But when the Clemson got my degree in engineering, after that, I met my a college sweetheart. We got married. Michelle and I did. And we got in the Army. I was in the Army. I was a tanker in the Army. Uh, any veterans out there, thank you, Deep Val, for your service. I very much appreciate you. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have to get fired at. I didn't know it never had to be in combat, thank the Lord. But I tell you, I never climbed in my M1A1 tank that I wasn't thinking that there's a sacrifice attached to this. And I started thinking about the men and women who did die for our freedom. And as a Christian first, I recognized we can't do what Jesus did, right? Jesus saved us from eternal damnation, from hell, from eternal consequences. But those men and women who died for our freedoms gave us this freedom on earth. And it's maybe that little bit of a picture of what Christ did for us in a bigger way. And so I started thinking through life. I, I never had confronted my patriotism. I had never confronted my, my, my love for the Lord. I, I never really thought about it, but I came face to face with, do you really believe what you really believe? And it was the army, bless you. I, I had to think through this. Do I really believe in this? And so I started reading biblical worldview books. The idea that my God's big enough to be everywhere all the time and everything. Let's face it, the godless have tried to tell the godly how to live. They've tried to say, ooh, you Christians, you shouldn't be involved in politics. That's gonna offend somebody. And we're the very ones who don't wanna offend. We wanna reach people. But we've put on our turn the other cheek Jesus and we back away and I think times dictate we better find our turn the tables over Jesus and find some righteous indignation. And so this has been a 30 year quest of mine my entire adult life trying to figure this out and that's how I found David Barton's stuff. Started reading it, started coming into contact with real truth and you recognize we're in a battle for truth. It's a spiritual battle. I can walk in here and I can say the room's 400 feet wide and Pastor Nathan can say, no, it's 360 feet wide. And it is only opinion until we have a measurement by which to measure it. And then we put that tape measure out, we have a measurement of truth. If Pastor Micah goes down to the community college and they want him to pray and they say, what are you gonna pray in? He can say anything, anything. He can say, I'm gonna pray in goat's breath or the wind or eagle's feathers, ooh. That's wonderful. But if he says, I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus, all hell will break loose. Because truth exposes error. And the only way error wins is to hide and lie about truth. That's what's happened in our history in America. They've lied about it. They've covered it up. They've glossed it over. They've called you bad names for believing in truth, for goodness sakes. That is where we are. So here I was, I'm learning all this stuff. I'm a young man, Michelle and I are living our lives. We feel led to get involved in politics, not official, but we knocked doors, we made phone calls, we waved signs. My boys were born, CJ in 1997, Bennett in 2000, sippy cup in the mouth, pass a sippy cup in the hand, a pacifier in the mouth and a vote for somebody sign. We were engaged trying to find Christians to run, knowing that Jesus ain't running, right? Jesus isn't running. He's not running for school board. He's not running for president. Therefore, you're always voting for the lesser of two evils because they're human beings. They're normal people. They're fallible. They're not perfect. So you learn what I said on the video. We don't vote for politicians or parties, but we do vote for principles and policies that align with our biblical worldview. And you know, I don't believe life is a political issue. It's a spiritual one. Traditional marriage is not a political issue. 
It's a spiritual issue. The defense of Israel or religious liberty. You can go right down the line. Yes, they've been politicized, but that doesn't remove my responsibility as a dad, a husband, a Sunday school teacher, and a deacon in my little Baptist church from telling the truth. Even if truth tries to be pushed aside and lied about, we're to tell the truth and stand for truth. And so here I was, we're getting involved, CJ and Bennett, Michelle and I, we're doing our thing because we're gonna do our best to elect good people. In 05, Michelle's mom died. In 06, long story made short, uh, my wife, 18 and a half years, committed suicide, took her own life, left me a single dad with two little boys. The important part of the story is this. I had spoken at Chick-fil-A. One reason we serve Chick-fil-A all over the country is they're a company worth edifying. And um, they've been so good to me and my family. Um, They have a Monday morning devotional. In 2006, I was invited in to speak on marriage and family. It was very humbling. Nobody knew my wife's home with deep depression. Now, I never saw suicide coming. But I said something I'd never said, and y'all know the best stuff comes from the Holy Spirit, not from you. And my boys were sitting over here in the corner, so the entire corporate office of Chick-fil-A is out there. And I looked at the boys and I said something, as many times I've spoken. I said, you know, I've messed up, I've made mistakes, I've even had business failures. I'm not gonna be a failure before God and man with my wife and my boys. I remember looking at the boys, and and they love Chick-fil-A headquarters. You can eat all the Chick-fil-A you wanna eat. The original Batmobile was in the lobby. Boys love that. And those of y'all who've raised boys know they can eat some groceries, right? Where'd you put that third sandwich, man, in your pants leg? So we're loving this. I look at them and I remember thinking, hey, Lord, that was good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that line again. I'm not gonna be a failure before you and man with my wife and my boys. That was Monday. The following Sunday, I taught my Sunday school class, like always. And I came home, the boys were on my heels. We had literally prayed for her deliverance that morning. I prayed, Lord, please deliver her from this depression. She just spun out when her mom died. Just, it was weird, uh, fluky thing. And I knew she was bad, but you don't ever think somebody's gonna put a gun in their mouth, right? That's, that's not logical. So we walk in to, through the laundry room into the kitchen and in my office, I see what I think was a stuffed animal and it was her blonde hair right there at the door and um, she was gone. So the boys were on my heels. I pushed them away, go to your room, go to your room. And I pulled Michelle to me, which probably wasn't the best idea long-term, but I pulled her to me and the devil said, ha ha, you failed. And I said, you failed. After my quote from the last week, I'm not gonna be a failure. Ha ha, you failed. I lay her back down, the boys are gone. I'm calling 911, I'm calling her dad. I'm calling my mom and dad, please come get the boys. I feel the Lord tell me this was not my plan, but I have a plan for Satan's disruption. Just like that. I lay Michelle back down and Romans 8.28 leaps up and punched me in the face. Now I wasn't reading it and I wasn't studying it, but scripture says we're to hide scripture in our hearts and it comes back out, right? And so y'all know what Romans 8.28 says, and we know all things work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Here's what I told the Lord, and I'm not proud, I challenged him. I lay her back down, I push the, go to your room, go to your room, they're five and nine. They've seen something, nobody, nobody ought to see that, right? Nobody ever ought to see that. Romans 8, 28 punches me. Now, I have read scripture before when I had to go back and read it again so I wasn't sure what I read. Anybody else admit to that? Other times it reaches up and grabs you and pulls you down and that's what Romans 8, 28 did. And here's what I told the Lord. All things, really? Really, all things? And he asked me if I believed it the day before and I said, yes, Lord. He said, I need you to believe it today. And I told him I would. He said, trust me. I told him I would. Now I had a hard time. Uh, I fainted in the casket room because my little boy Bennett, who was five, said, mommy would like this one. 
It had angels on it. And a pastor buddy of mine from Frisco, Texas caught me before. There's a casket room you go and pick out. It's, it's, it's awful. I guess that's what they got to do. I had never even processed the idea of looking for a tombstone. That was never on my shopping list. Ooh, let's go tombstone looking. You don't do that. I had three or four months. I just couldn't get off the mat. And, and my mom and dad were phenomenal. My church, what Pastor Nathan, what do people do without a home church? What, when people, when they go through stuff, what do they do without a home church? My church was phenomenal. The Casserole Brigade, man, we call that our church. Uh, they were awesome. I needed that. But at the end of the day, I got two little boys who were asking me hard questions, sitting on the bed crying every night because mommy's not there. Three or four months later, the first thing I went to, five months later, was my, I'm on a pro-family board in South Carolina, and one of my buddies was just consistent. The first time in November he sees me, he makes a beeline. Hey, Bo, I know you're not ready when you are. I got a girl you need to meet. I'm like, J.D., get out of my face. I love you, man, but get, leave me alone. Man, I'm having a hard time. He left me alone. We go back to the meeting for December to approve the budget for the next year. I walk in the door. He makes a beeline. Here he is. Hey, Bo. You got to meet this girl. J.D., what are you, what are you doing, man? I'm not, I don't have time. For, I'm having a hard time, buddy. And J.D. did what a good Christian brother would do, and he got in my grill. He said, Chad, I've been watching you speak for years. You're Mr. Positive. This ain't going to beat you. He said, you know that talk you do about counting your blessings? Do y'all hate it when people use your words against you? I really hate that. He said, read your notes. And I went home, and the boys and I put all the, her rings and stuff in a little safe, and and we prayed over that, and the Lord gave me three very specific prayers, and I wrote down 103 blessings, because I'd written the notes on that talk. J.D. knew it. The next month, I go back, I'm reading those prayers, I'm believing God's got a plan, I tell the boys we're going to move on, I'm holding on to Romans 8:28. I go to the meeting, here comes J.D. You got to meet this girl. Man, go give it a rest. I said, okay, what's her name? He said, Dana. I said, Big question, because I had prayed specifically not to have a guy in the picture. That was my prayer. I never prayed for a widow, but I just know I didn't want to trade kids on the weekends. I was praying for a widow, right? Okay, how'd she get single? He said, oh, same way you did. Turns out her husband took his own life two years almost to the day before my wife. That's 15 years ago. Uh, Dana and I have been married 15 years. She had two little girls, I had two little boys, and here's why I told that whole story. I learned God wasn't done with me yet. I wouldn't have given you a plug nickel, which is worth nothing, for me standing here or anywhere else trying to encourage you or anybody else. And yet God restores, he's the repairer of the breach, right? And he showed me he wasn't done with me. And here's my message, if he's not done with me, he's not done with you. He's not done with your church, and he's not done with America. Amen. This is our time to reemerge. So I, I get back involved in politics. Dana's there. We got four little kids. We have a honeymoon. We come home to four children between 10 and five. We're putting together a new family. At the same time, I run for state party chairman a couple of years later. I get elected. Y'all probably know South Carolina is a big deal in the presidential preference politics. It goes Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. I literally did every political show on television. You can go back and do the Googling. You can watch them have some good entertainment. I was on MSNBC on Reverend Al Sharpton's show who kept whispering in my ear, call me Reverend Al. I'm like, I ain't calling you Reverend nothing. I got far too respect, much respect for reverends to put you in that category. And so... I'm doing this show and I'm on my theme about promoting my state, but I'm beating up the party for ignoring and taking for granted the faith vote. 
That, that's been my common theme for now 30 years of my life. And I, I said over and over and over, those shows and others, it's not that people in the church want to be R's or D's, but they do want to vote biblical values. And they do know that there are some parties who've given this up completely. You're not even talking to them. You know, the experts, you shouldn't mention your name, but experts with initials like Karl Rove, they just take for granted, you know, the Christian vote's going to show up. And the truth is they don't. They want to know where you stand on the issues. Well, a guy named Reince Priebus saw me on the TV show and he texted me. He said, hey, great job defending your faith in a hostile environment. Uh, I'd like to get to know you, uh, you know, and I'm a believer too. It was just like that. And I, I knew him, I'm one of his 50 chairmen, but I, did, I didn't know the guy. So we meet after the election, I'd said on CNN, I thought that Obama's Department of Justice was gonna be the worst train wreck of disaster for Christians and religious liberty. I'm not a, a, a prophet by any means, but I was right. For the first time in American history, your tax dollars were used to sue Christians for living their lives, for being florists or wedding planners, photographers or whatever. And if we are so naive to think that doesn't come from the church and the Christian school, we, we're crazy. We are missing out on this. And so I go see Priebus. We form a thing called GOP Faith. I got to be the first ever national director of faith engagement for either party. From 13 to 17, I went to 43 states, spoke to about 80,000 people, pastors, mostly in meetings like this. Message, pretty simple. We don't need you to charge the beach at D-Day. Can you register everybody to vote in your church? Can you make sure they vote biblical values? That's it. That's it. Can you register everybody? And as soon as some pastor says, and they're hiding behind the pulpit saying, ooh, we don't do politics. Ask them, do y'all do Bible? <laughs> Can you tell me where politics begins in your Bible and spiritual life stops? Because I don't think it's any different. I think we're supposed to be engaged. We're supposed to be involved. And Matthew 5, salt and light verses are pretty clear. If you're not, scripture says you're good for nothing to be thrown in the street and trodden under the feet of men. I do not want to be called good for nothing by the father. So uh, we flipped nine Senate seats in 2014, 2016, a guy who, you know, evangelicals probably wouldn't have helped, got 81% of the evangelical vote. We never told him who to vote for, but we told him to vote biblical values. And it was a modern day record of 81%. I left the RNC in 2017. I started Faith Wins Then. It was a, just a God thing. I had a mentor who said, go do it on your own. For the last five years, I've been traveling the country for the last two with this couple that are awesome, unbelievable people, David and Cheryl Barton. We, you know, we got involved in a little state called Virginia. Virginia had a problem in 2021. The legislature had to solve a problem. You know how politicians are. We're going to fix this for you. Their problem was not roads and bridges and potholes and taxes. No, no, no. They had babies surviving abortions. They didn't know what to do with them. So get this. They already tried to abort them. They live. What are we going to do with these babies? The Virginia legislature passed a new law that said they're going to let those babies, quote unquote, die comfortably. The then governor was in the chambers and got up and stood and clapped. That's evil, wicked, y'all. That's awful. Me and you would have got them a blanket. We would have saved their lives. We would have taken, no, no, no. They die comfortably. We didn't tell people to vote for, but we found 312 churches to do voter registration. 77,000 new people sitting in churches that had never voted before voted. And a guy named Glenn Youngkin won by 65,000 votes. Now, I don't... I don't know if we helped or not, but we found 77,000 Christians who'd never voted before and the guy won by 0.6%. One of my pastors who got really close to governor, now Governor Youngkin was a little upset at the inauguration. He didn't hire a pastor. He didn't have a pastor there to, to say the prayer at the end. You know why? Because at the end, Governor Youngkin prayed in Jesus' name in his own inauguration. That's the difference. 
The state of Virginia goes from having a governor who applauds killing babies who survived abortions and let them die comfortably to a governor who prays in Jesus' name. That's Christians making a difference. I don't care what you say. The other thing that came out of that, and I'm going to talk about this with that QR code at the end. 1,343 people in those churches stood up and said, I want to be a poll watcher. I want to be a sworn election officer. We believe it ought to be Christian eyeballs on the process. It should be easy to vote and hard to cheat. I'm not saying anybody's cheating. I just want to make sure it's easy to vote and hard to cheat. I just think it looks odd when we find out things like one person registered 27 times. We didn't think that was right. One, one place registered 17 people out of the same address. They called me and said, what do you think, Chad? I said, it's a big house. We sent Sunday school teachers and Sunday school classes to check it out. It was a field that had registered 17 people. And we started turning that stuff in. Y'all, now's the time for the church to engage this deal. We believe we're getting to see a front row seat of the awakening of America. People saying, I've had it. Let's put biblical people in office. Jesus is not running. There's no perfect. Let's go find the best ones that most closely align with a biblical worldview. And the best person in America to teach them the background of that, to show the proof, the truth about America's role, God's role in America to make this the most free place in the world. This is such an awesome country that people who hate it won't even leave. I think that's awesome. We got more whining going on about how bad America is. And I have been places I have disliked. And you know what I did? I got out of there. Yep. If you go somewhere you don't enjoy, just leave. No, no, no. We'd rather whine and complain and fuss and moan about it instead of leaving. And all I notice is there's a long line of people waiting to get in this place called America. And if you find somebody that knows more about American truth and history than David Barton, you need to introduce them to me. He and his family own 160,000 pieces of original American documentation, 120,000 before 1812. So if you find some pointy-headed nerd university professor saying, I think the, the founders meant. No, no, no. David and Cheryl and wall builders own it. It's factual. Mike has put his hands on it. We've seen Bibles owned by the founders. After this, you're going to want to beat feet, get that founder's Bible. It connects the truth about America's history, how they founded it, how they created the principles, the American story, telling the stories about America, about God's role in our nation. And this guy is unbelievable. I have drugged them around America. We've been all over the place. We've been just about in every state you can name. We got about 30 more of these meetings and I think 11 more states between now and election day because we are determined to make an impact for God in our nation. We're committed to doing this and we appreciate the opportunity to be here. I appreciate your pastor leadership. And y'all need to buckle on tight. You're going to think two things. You're going to be nudging people. I wish so-and-so had been here. And the second thing, you'll want to leave here and find your history teacher and say, you ripped me off. <laughs> Why didn't you teach me this? Because I should have known this. Y'all help welcome up America's greatest living Christian historian, my buddy, David Barton. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, guys. Thank y'all for being here. I want to start this morning with American Bible Society. They come out every year with the State of the Bible Report 2022. American Bible Society was started in 1816 by founding fathers. It's the oldest Bible society in the world. It's the largest Bible society in the world. They give out 200 million Bibles a year. And in their 2022 report, and they do this every year, what you find is if you look at the chart here, there's a drop over here on the right. What they documented was last year, we lost another 26 million Americans who no longer read the Bible at all. I mean, it's just, it's on the way down. Bible reading's going out. 
This is the lowest it's ever been in America's recorded history. We've never had this kind of biblical literacy. Now, from a spiritual standpoint, we know Jesus tells us in Matthew 4 that man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we know that just like we have to feed the body as we're doing right now, we also have to feed the spirit as well. Spiritual man needs food. And we're not doing a real good job of that. Now, as Americans, we do a great job of feeding the body. I mean, we'll get our three a day. There's no, no question. We won't miss that. But we don't do the same spiritually necessarily. So I'm going to encourage you. Maybe you already do it. I'm going to encourage you to do more of it. You need to find a way to read the Bible every day. Remember Jesus in the Lord's Prayer said, give us this day our daily bread. You need at least one spiritual meal a day. I mean, we get three physical meals a day. Get one spiritual meal a day. And also go a step further and get a little more serious, and that's by memorizing Scripture. It's more work. It takes more effort to do that, but it's significant. Let me show you why both of these are really important from an American history standpoint. If I take you back to 1787, we have 55 founding fathers writing the Constitution. Up to 55 founding fathers, nobody was happier about what was going on than Ben Franklin. He's the first guy in our history to call for the United States of America. He did it in 1754, 33 years before the Constitutional Convention. And at that point in time, it, it didn't happen. It wasn't going to happen because we had 13 nations back then. We don't have colonies. We had nations. They didn't even really like each other. It's a lot like Europe is. Europe's been trying for years to get a European constitution. And they can't get together on it because Poland says, man, we'd love to have a constitution. We're going to put God right up top in the constitution. France says, if you have the word God anywhere in that constitution, we're not going to be part of it. And so this is the kind of conflict that's gone between all those nations. So they don't have a European constitution. It was not that different in the American colonies. You had North and South Carolina. They didn't even like each other. They had border wars back and forth. They each had different currency. You had to change your currency to go from North Carolina to South Carolina. Maryland and Virginia had border wars. So we were 13 nations back then. He's calling for us to be one nation, set aside that stuff. And they just weren't ready to do it. By the time you get to 1787, they're thinking about it now. They've come a long way. And so Franklin is there at the Constitutional Convention, and, and this is Franklin right here. And at this point in his life, he's 81 years old. And that's not particularly impressive to us because today in America, the average lifespan is 80 years old. He's 81 at that point, and the average lifespan back in eight, 1787 was 33 years old. So consider how old he is compared to the rest of them. Pretty impressive. And he's, he's really happy this is going on, but as the days go on, he gets less happy about what's going on. And about five weeks into it, he, he really is, is discouraged because what's happened is all the 13 have come with their own agendas. You had the Virginia plan for the Constitution, the Connecticut plan for the Constitution, New Jersey plan for the Constitution, New York plan for the Constitution. Of course, New York didn't want Virginia's, Virginia didn't want Connecticut's, Connecticut didn't want Jersey's. And so five weeks in, this thing literally is falling apart. Alexander Hamilton has left. He's going back to New York. He said, I got better things to do than fight with the rest of you here. I'm out. You had George Mason, same thing. He says, I'm tired of bickering with everybody. I'm going back to Virginia. The thing literally is falling apart. At that point, Franklin sees the, the dream of his life going out the door. And at that point, he delivers a very passionate speech to, to the delegates. It was Thursday, June 28, 1787. And he delivered a lot of speeches before this. But every speech he delivered before this, he went home that night in the convention, thought about it. He wrote out his speech and then had someone read the speech the next day. So he didn't deliver any of his own speeches. He had a lot of speeches, but he wrote them all out. Somebody else delivered them. This is the only speech he gave himself. 
He gave it without writing it out. We know what he said because James Madison took notes at the convention, so we know what, what Franklin said. And so this speech is just out of the heart. It's off the cuff. It's just the, the passion of his frustration. And this is what he tells him. He said, gentlemen, he said, in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we've not once hitherto thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? He said, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, whoops, in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. Now, this is the room in which 11 years earlier they signed the Declaration of Independence. Back then, we did not have a bicameral system. We didn't have a house and Senate. We had one body, it was unicameral, but it had three chaplains and they prayed a whole lot. Matter of fact, by the time you get to 1815, there had been 1,400 government-issued calls to prayer in America. And, and as he said, our prayers were heard and graciously answered. Just check the writings of George Washington. He has 250 acknowledgments of God's direct intervention in what went on. He saw God's miracles time after time, whether it was the Battle of Brooklyn Heights or the Battle of Trenton or whether it's the Battle of Brandywine or the Battle of Yorktown. 250 occasions he talks about how God intervened. And so that's what Franklin's saying, guys, we've seen God all these, these last years intervene. He said, all of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? He said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of man. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. He said, I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we should succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we should become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. He said, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, I think we can agree that that has a spiritual tone to the speech that's got a spiritual element to it. And I think we can also agree that Franklin is the least religious of the founding fathers. Of the 250 folks we call founding fathers, he hands down least religious, not disputed. That's not bad for your least religious founding father. <laughs> See, what happens is professors, they say, oh, the founding father's atheist, agnostic, deist, look at Franklin. Franklin may be the least religious, but that's a comparative term. You see, somebody in this room right now is the least religious person here. Doesn't mean you're religious hostile or anti-God or anti-Jesus. Maybe it means you're 99.6% when everybody else is 99.7%. It's a comparative term. It's not a term of hostility. And we've made it into a term of hostility and made him representative of how none of the founding fathers are Christians. That speech that Franklin just gave, you've read it, it's 14 sentences long. Here's the question I got for you. How many Bible verses did Franklin quote in that speech? You saw a religious tone. How many Bible verses did you recognize? You should have recognized 14 Bible verses because these are the Bible verses he quoted in that speech. Now, this is your least religious founding father. He's doing this without notes. He's just doing it out of his heart. How in the world does Franklin know that much Bible? Jesus tells us. 
In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's on the inside is going to come out the mouth. And that's hate, same thing, anger, rage, whatever it is, or if it's God's word on the inside, it's going to come out. This tells you how much Franklin had memorized in the way of Bible verses, that just when the emotions got going, what came out when he started talking? Bible verses. See, this was common for back in the day. And I'm going to show you what it was in schools and other founding fathers as well. And Franklin's got a real interesting exchange that he had with a minister, uh, Minister Samuel Cooper. He's one of the famous ministers up in, in the Boston area. He was the pastor of John Adams and John Hancock and Sam Adams and all those guys. And Franklin's really close to so many ministers and writes back and forth with a lot of them, with Ezra Stiles and George Whitfield and all these others. And he was talking, as these guys wrote back and forth, he told Dr. Cooper, he said, you know, he said, there's a real difference between crowds in America and crowds in England. He said, when I speak in America, like if I'm up in New England speaking to a crowd up there, he said, I never have to tell people when I'm quoting the Bible because we've all studied the Bible. We all know it. We all recognize the Bible. He said, but when I go to Europe, and he was ambassador to France, America sent us ambassador to France, ambassador to, to England. He said, whenever I'm in Europe and I give speeches over there, he says, I have to tell them what I'm quoting the Bible because they just, they don't know the Bible over there. They're so secular, they don't know the Bible. This is what he explained. He says, it's not necessary in New England where everybody reads the Bible and is acquainted with scripture phrases that I should note the Bible references from which I take them. I don't ever have to tell. Did you see him quote any Bible verses out loud at the convention? He didn't say the scripture says. He didn't say, here's a verse from Deuteronomy. He didn't say that because everybody recognized it. This is what we did in America. He says, but I've observed that in England as well as in France that verses and expressions taken from the sacred writings and not known to be such appear very strange and awkward readers. I have to tell them when I quote the Bible there because they don't recognize it. America today has become what Europe was 200 years ago. We don't recognize Bible verses when they're spoken because we're just kind of unfamiliar with them. Another example of this, if I take you to Patrick Henry, the one speech that is covered in some places, we don't even cover this well anymore. We have a network of legislators called Wall Builders Pro Family Legislative Network. We got about 1,000 legislators in the network. We work with them throughout all 50 states. Last year, we monitored 159,000 pieces of, of legislation. We know the issues that are going on and what's happening with them. And with all these legislators that we have, uh, significantly, you, you see these, these legislators and what happens. Well, Patrick Henry is in the legislature and, and he's there. And a, as a legislator, he's really kind of ticked off over an issue that's going at that time. Because he's a young legislator, he's in the Virginia legislature, and in, in the history books, or at least in some of the history books, you'll find this give me liberty, give me death speech that he gave. Now, the reason I talk about Wall Builders Pro Family Legislative Network is because all the states have different cycles for approving history standards or health standards or English standards or math standards. In Texas, every 12 years, we, we approve the new standards for the next 12 years. Some states it's 10 years, some states it's less, some states it's more. But we were contacted this year by states such as Minnesota. Minnesota said, we just passed our standards for the next 10 years, and for the next 10 years, we will not teach the American Revolution, the Civil War, World War II, World War I, or the Holocaust. They're all out. We're going to teach 1619 and CRT. Now, he was distressed about it, but that's what Minnesota voted to do. Even down in a state like Louisiana, you consider conservative red state, uh, we testified at the legislature down there. Even in Louisiana, they said, no, no, we're not going to teach World War II anymore. We're not going to teach the Holocaust. I mean, this is going across the nation now. And so we're becoming more and more historically illiterate. So if we see this speech in a history book, this, this Patrick Henry speech, what happened was, 
at this point in time, America, we've had stuff going up, up in New England, Lexington, Concord. We've had stuff going in Williamsburg, Virginia. We've got all this stuff going on. And all these senior legislators are saying this is really bad, but there's nothing we can do about it. Great Britain's the greatest military in the world. We don't have an army. We don't have a navy. We can't do anything. We're just going to have to do what they say and just put up with it as much as we just like it. That's the only option we got. And Patrick Henry, who's a young legislator, has just had it up to here with the cowardice. And his speech is essentially, get a backbone, guys. Stand up. Stand for what's right. If you do, God will help you. And so he gives that speech, and you can look it up online and see it. And what you'll find is in 14 sentences in that speech, he actually quotes 11 Bible verses. These are the verses he quoted. And it's the same kind of passionate speech, not with notes. Uh, he just gives us all off, off the cuff, if you will. And I'm going to suggest to you that the kind of verses they memorized back then are what we do now. We might know John 3.16, but the chances that we know 2 Chronicles 32.8 or Deuteronomy 32.4 or Psalm 75.7, those aren't the verses we memorize. This is what came out of them when they started speaking. One more example, George Washington, the only president we've ever had to be elected unanimously. In 1790, he says, you know, America is not used to really being a nation yet. We're still the 13 colonies, 13 separate things. He said, I think it'd be really good if I were to go visit individually every single state, let them see the president of the United States, let them know that we're part of a nation. So he lays out a two-year plan by which he goes to all 13 states. And think about at that time, the national capitals in New York City. So he's going to get on a horse or in a carriage and he's going to go all the way to Georgia and all the way to Carolinas, which is what he did. So every state he visited in that two-year plan. And in 1790, one of the states he was going into was Rhode Island. And when word got out that President Washington's coming to Rhode Island, uh, he got a letter from the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Jewish congregation, and they, the letter was effusive. They said, we so thank God for you. He raised you up for this time. You protected our religious liberties. You defended our freedoms. We, and it's just a real effusive letter, you know, just you're great. And Washington gets that and he writes back and his letter is much more presidential in reply. He's a little more modulated. He said, well, you know, thank you guys. That, that's, that's a really nice letter you sent and I'm looking forward to seeing you when I get there. And so his letter back to the Hebrew congregation is only two sentences. It's interesting that in two sentences, he quoted 10 Bible verses in those sentences. These are the Bible verses he quoted in those two sentences. Now, one of the things we do at Wall Builders in the summer, we do a lot of, of training for teachers and do a lot of training for legislators, et cetera. But we do a lot of training for 18 to 25 year olds who are going into college or who are in their master's program or doctoral program. We know what they get taught at college and we know what they haven't seen. And as Chad pointed out, we have those 160,000 original documents. We got everything from Columbus all the way. We've got the Bible that landed on the moon with Apollo 14. So we got all this stuff and tens of thousands of the original documents. And one of the mornings as, we, as we're with the young people, we will lay out tables with just founding father letters on them. Here, here's Abigail Adams and here's John Langdon and here's John Witherspoon, all these letters. We'll put out these letters, the original letters, and we'll put out a bunch of concordances. They go, okay, take the Bible concordance, take a letter, and find out how many Bible verses they quote. Because all the letters are like, I don't know that anybody quotes more Bible verses than Abigail Adams does. I mean, her letter is just almost like reading the Pauline epistles in some way. She takes verse after verse after verse and arranges them to say what she wants to say. And so this is, this is the way it had been. And so what you find back then is that all these guys had hidden God's word in their heart. Psalms 9, 119 says, hide God's word in your heart. They did that. Bible memorization was a big part of it. We just don't recognize it today because we don't know the Bible the way they used to. 
Now, significantly, as you look at what we have today in, in the nation, we've been very blessed. I think there's no nation in the world that takes its blessings more for granted than we do as Americans, because we've had so many of them. It's just normal, it's natural. And a great example of that is our Constitution. You see, there's 5,800 years of recorded history. There's thousands of nations in that period of time. There's hundreds of constitutions in that period of time. Cornell University Law School said, what is the average length of a constitution in the history of the world? And they went over that 5,800 years and thousands of nations and hundreds of constitutions. And they said the average constitution throughout history has lasted 17 years. Just a month ago, we had Constitution Day, September 17th. We celebrated 235 years under the same piece of paper. Nobody in the... Nobody in the world has come close to that number, and we just take it for granted. We so take it for granted that right now, we do a lot of national polling, and right now, national polling, you'll find that among college students, 75% want to get rid of the Constitution and go to socialism. 49% of millennials want to get rid of the Constitution and go to socialism. Now, you look at that, and you look at those numbers, and you know, just as there's recorded history of thousands of nations, hundreds of constitutions, there's recorded history of thousands of nations and hundreds of socialistic nations. There's never been a single socialistic nation in history that has been able to preserve individual freedoms and keep national prosperity. It has never happened, not once. Well, it'll happen if we do it in America because anything we do succeeds. No, that's really stupid. If we put, <laughs> if we put our hand on a stove, we're gonna get burned like everybody else did because we're Americans doesn't keep us from getting burned. But you see, we know so little about who we are and so little about how special that we are that we don't protect the blessings we have. We're just willing to throw them away like, you know, Jacob and Esau. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of pottage. And that's essentially what happens when you don't understand how significant it is. So in addition to the stability that we enjoy, we also have amazing creativity. You see, America's 4% of the world's population. Now, 4% of the world's population should produce 4% of whatever. But when you look at inventions, and we can measure inventions by international copyright, patent protection, we can measure how many inventions have been done in and out of America. Right now, our 4% of the world's population has created more than 96% of the world's inventions. We're surrounded by stuff that we take for granted on a regular basis that everybody else wishes they could have access to. Same thing when you look at prosperity. The census requires, the Constitution requires that every 10 years we do a census. We did the latest one in 2020. The results came out in 2021. According to census data, if you live in poverty in America, and we don't want anyone in America living in poverty, but if you live in poverty in America, census data shows that your lifestyle is higher than the middle class in Europe, which is the second wealthiest place on the face of the earth. Wait a minute. Poverty in America is higher than middle class in Europe? Yep. That's why everybody in the world is lining up on our border because if they can just come be poor in America, they've elevated their lifestyle higher than anything they've seen in their nation. So we don't understand the blessings we have. Now, this, the blessing, where do these come from? I mean, who, who are the leaders responsible for what we have? And would be fair to say, well, the guys who gave us the Declaration of the Constitution, that's a good starting spot. So leaders responsible for what we enjoy today. How about George Washington and folks like John Hancock would be another one. And then John Adams, same way. And these are all good choices. What I find interesting is John Adams in 1818 got a letter from a guy named Hezekiah Niles. Now, 1818, Adams is an old man. This is 42 years after he signed the Declaration of Independence. Hezekiah Niles is a young man. He would be a millennial of that generation. Hezekiah Niles told Adams, he says, I'm writing a book on the history of America. He says, and by the way, that book came out in 1822. We have, it's called Principles and Acts of the American Revolution. 
But he said, I, I wasn't there when this stuff, and you were. And I want to get your perspective on it. He said, here we are today, and we enjoy so much of what you guys did. Where did you guys get your ideas? That's a great question. And so asking John Adams, who's responsible for these ideas, John Adams said, well, right up top, you've got the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. And then, of course, you've got the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew. And don't forget the Reverend George Whitfield. Oh, you've got the Reverend Charles John. Goes through and starts listing preachers. Now, these aren't the folks we would list today. And by the way, we, other than Whitfield, the chances that we know anything about Cooper or Mayhew or Chauncey is slim to none. See, we don't study preachers today, whether they're white or black. I mean, who in the world is, is Richard Allen? Who's Absalom Jones? And who's John Morant? Who's Lemuel Haynes? Or even Harry Hoosier? And Harry Hoosier is a good example. Harry Hoosier was part of the Great Awakenings. Now, back in the Great Awakenings, you think about the great preachers back then. It's George Whitfield. It's John and Charles Wesley. It's Francis Asbury. We've got all these great preachers. And these guys, at a time when America's population was only 3 million, they would get 20 or 30,000 people out in a pasture and speak to them all at once. Just amazing stuff that they did. And Francis Asbury, who was one of those great leaders, he said, Harry draws larger crowds than we do. Never heard of Harry Hoosier. And then Benjamin Rush, who's a signer of the Declaration, out of the 250 folks we call founding fathers, John Adams said the three most notable founding fathers, number one was George Washington, number two has been Franklin, number three is Benjamin Rush. We know nothing about him today. I'll show you more about him later. Benjamin Rush said, I attend Harry's meetings, and Harry's the greatest orator I've ever heard. Wait a minute, you're running around with Patrick Henry, and Harry's better than, yeah, Harry's the best orator I've ever heard. Harry's ministry was largely the blue-collar folks, the, the woodsmen, the hunters, the trappers. The, these guys, they fought a lot, they cussed a lot, they drank a lot. And as they got converted, their behavior changed. They didn't drink as much or fight as much or cuss as much, but they still loved the outdoors and they still loved the woods. They're what we would call long hunters. A long hunter is someone who would go out deer hunting and come back about eight months later having found two more states somewhere. I mean, they just wander around and just always looking for stuff. And, and so that's what these guys were. And so Harry's ministry was, interestingly, was along the East Coast. He was over in Philadelphia, uh, Delaware and Jersey in that area. But what happened is America started moving toward the West. And by the time you get to 1806, 1807, 1808, we've gone pretty far West. And all these, these woodsmen guys are going West with America because that's what they love. They love opening new, new area. And so they were all out West. And, but they had a little issue when they got West because these guys that are trappers looked at these converts of Harry and they said, they sure act really different. What's up with those guys? They're a bunch of those Hoosiers. Now, it was the Indiana Territory, of course. And, oh, Indiana's named after a black evangelist? I wonder how many schools teach that. Not many that I've seen. Certainly not outside of Indiana do we see this. Isn't it interesting that you would think that if a state was named after a guy, he might show up in a history book somewhere? And by the way, I love your State History Society website. They give four options for where the, the name might have come from. And the other three are just almost ridiculous. There was a bar fight that went on, on the state lines and after it was over, somebody's ear had been bit off in the fight and somebody set it up and said, whose ear? And that's where you got your name, Hoosier. How about named after the guy who is Hoosier? You know, I, it's just, it's like we do everything to not acknowledge that, but nonetheless, so Harry Hoosier is typical of, of what we see back then that we don't know, but today we're told, oh, all the American founding, they're a bunch of white guys. 
I look at that, you're right, that's a bunch of white guys. And by the way, how do we know what they look like? Because there weren't any photographs back then. And this painting was painted in 1821 after most of these guys had been dead for a long time. So when John Trumbull painted this in 1821, how did he know what they looked like? Maybe he made it all up. Now here's the deal. Back in that time with no cameras, no pictures, it took money to have a painting done, but they would spend the money if someone had done something really significant. If he was a general, if he was a governor, if he had done the Declaration of Constitution. So what happened in 1821, John Trumbull just gathered up all the portraits of these guys and used the portraits to paint the painting. The painting is massive. It's a 14 foot high, 20 foot wide painting. It hangs in the rotunda of the US Capitol. It's life size and he painted it off of that. And so what happens is if you're really significant, you get a painting done. Yeah, it's a bunch of white guys. How come we don't talk about all the paintings of all the black guys that are there? Because these are equally significant paintings who did, guys who did equally significant stuff, got their paintings done. We just don't even know who they are today. I mean, just as an example, you take over here, Jack Sisson, probably the first SEAL team member back before we had SEAL teams, 1777, or Benjamin Banneker, or Richard Allen, or uh, Peter Salem, the hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill, or Harry Hoosier, right here, John Chavez in North Carolina, Lemuel Haynes, first black man to receive a degree of higher education, James Armistead, George Washington, Lafayette said he's the reason we won the American Revolution. We don't talk about him anymore. Or Prince Estabrook, the Battle of Lexington. Go through all these guys, they're all significant. Example, this guy right here on horseback, this guy on horseback is named Wentworth Cheswell. Wentworth Cheswell is New Hampshire. He was elected to office in 1768. A black guy elected in a white community, 1768, yep. And he's a founding father of New Hampshire. Uh, he was reelected for the next 49 years. He held eight different political positions, started the school system in New Hampshire, the historian of New Hampshire. We know what happened up there because the three volumes said that uh, the history of New Hampshire, Jeremy Bellinout, and he provided the information. He's a really important guy. And he made a Paul Revere ride across New Hampshire saying the British are coming. Same thing that Revere did down in Massachusetts. But he's certainly not the first black elected in America. You go back to 1641 and you have a guy named Matthias de Souza who's elected by the white community in Maryland and he serves, a black man serving in the Maryland legislature in 1641. Well, by the time you get to the American Revolution, there have been hundreds of blacks serving in office. And by the time you get to the Civil War, by the end of the Civil War, by the end of Reconstruction, there have been thousands of blacks serving in office. We have black two-star generals in, in the war. If you look up on, on Wikipedia today and say, who's the first black general? Benjamin Davis, 1968 in Vietnam. No, let's go to Robert Smalls back in 1868 in South Carolina. We don't know these guys today. So... What happens is with all these things that we don't know from, from history, take all these black elected officials. When was the first black elected to office in Great Britain? 1987. When's the first black elected office in Russia? 2010. We're elected blacks to office in 1641 and we're the most racist nation in the history of the world. There's nobody worse than America. You can say that if you don't know your history. If you don't know your history, you can talk about critical. How come we didn't teach critical race theory 30 years ago? Because we knew our history too well. We knew these guys, but we don't know them anymore. And so, oh yes, there's been racial problems. Why? Because people are involved. As long as you got people, you're gonna have problems. But what we always did was we taught the good and the bad and the ugly. Today we teach the bad and the ugly, none of the good, and we even make up a bunch of bad and ugly that didn't even happen. 
but that's because we're historically illiterate. And so being historically illiterate, it's not a, a good place to be, but that's what's happened in the nation. So going back and looking at America, we've been very blessed. Why? It's interesting that if you go back to textbooks used throughout our history, the first textbook printed in America was 1690 in Boston. We have that textbook. We have textbooks used for the next several centuries. And if you go through the textbooks, they consistently say, students, the reason America is different from all other nations is because of the Bible. It's the Bible that's made us different. Now, it'd be very tough for most Christians today to defend such a statement. There's a lot of ways you can defend it. I'm going to show you several, but let me just start with one. The way we talk to one another is shaped by the Bible. We have what we call idioms. We use idioms, little phrases we throw back and forth. We have 257 idioms that we use on a daily basis that are direct quotes out of the Bible. Americans quote the Bible to each other every day without recognizing it because we, again, don't know the Bible that well. But these are all things you've heard or said by the skin of your teeth or I'll give you my two cents worth. Leopard can't change his spots. There's nothing new. Every one of these is a Bible verse, every single one of them. And we use these on a daily basis. You hear them all the time back and forth. As a matter of fact, one of the things I love doing, I did it just last night, was listening to a, a sportscaster last night. And we use these items all the time. And so I'll send a note back to, to the office, which I did last night. And I said, at this point in time, this guy talked and he said, this Bible verse on this story. And so we keep records of what I hear. And just over the last four years, I will tell you, hands down, the single national network that has quoted the Bible more than any other network is ESPN. Now, they don't have a clue that they've ever quoted a Bible verse. And if they knew, they would instantly stop. But, you know, go, go back to four years ago. They announced LeBron Jaker is going to the Lakers. He's going to take the Lakers to the promised land. That didn't happen, obviously. What's this promised land thing? Oh, that's the Bible. They don't have a clue. And so the way we talk, if you don't have a lot of fun, next time you go to Walmart or Home Depot or you go to McDonald's gas station, you're going to hear somebody use one of these Bible verses. And you ought to stop them and say, hey, do you know what Bible verse you just quoted? Now they're going to look at you like you're crazy and they're going to say, no, I don't have a clue. What Bible verse was that? And you won't have a clue either. I mean, we don't know where this stuff came from. Every one of these has an address. If you look up all of these addresses, you will find those phrases. See, we quote the Bible all the time to each other. We just don't recognize that we do. The Bible is shaped the way we talk to one another. If you go to John Quincy Adams, I think he describes well where we are today. He says, with regard to the history contained in the Bible, it's not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. You see, if you had known those 257, we would praise you and say, oh, wow, what a Bible scholar you are. We would praise you today for knowing the Bible. Back in their day, they would say, wait a minute, you, you didn't know the stuff came out of the Bible? Shame on you. How can you call yourself an educated person and not know the greatest book in the history of the world? So what was shameful back then has become praiseworthy today. That's that shift that we've seen that we're not as biblical even as Franklin was back in that day. Uh, another president, this is Zachary Taylor. I'm just going to use presidents for the next few minutes because it surprises many Americans to find that for 170 years, it was the presidents of the United States who were all the time telling Americans, we can't survive without the Bible. The Bible is what made America. And this is presidents saying that. You can imagine what would happen today if any president said it today. It doesn't matter whether it's Trump or Biden, either one. If either one of them made that comment, they'd be torn to pieces. And look what President Zachary Taylor said, war hero. His nickname is Old Rough and Ready. He says, the Bible is the best of books. I wish it were in the hands of everyone. It's indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions, not our faith. 
Our institutions? Yeah. See, here's another interesting thing. When you look at economic systems in the world, there's a number of different economic systems. America has the free market system. We don't have command economies or the other different systems. We have a free market system. And you'll find that in the modern world, we're the first ones to implement that. 1627 in Massachusetts, because in Europe at the time, every nation was socialistic. The king owned everything. The state owned everything. We would let you use it. We would give you what you needed. You give it all to the king. He'll distribute it the way he thinks it should be distributed. Everybody's socialistic. So when the pilgrims came here, they were socialists when they got here. When the Jamestown colony came here, they were socialists when they got here. And it's interesting, their own governors record the change. And for example, when you're at Jamestown, or when you're at Plymouth, Governor William Bradford said, we had been socialists, and he said, as if we were wiser than God. But see, what happened in, in Plymouth was they spent several hours a day in the Bible. It was a brand new book, it had been put up for more than a millennial. You would get yourself killed if you tried to read the Bible for nearly a thousand years. Uh, it came out in English in 1560, and a lot of people died just to get it done in English. But when it came out, they started reading it and said, man, we haven't been doing this. This is so different from what we've been doing for a thousand years. And so when they get to America, Bradford says that they would spend four, six, eight hours a day reading the scriptures, because it's a brand new book, it's a different way of life, everything is different in it. And he said that they found 1 Timothy 5.8. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an infidel. You've denied the faith. He said, whoa, we've been providing for everybody else's household. We're going to provide for our own household? Suddenly, then you've got an incentive to provide. And he said that within three years, their prosperity, their productivity went up sevenfold in just three years. Aptuck, Massachusetts is the first place to have a free market business, uh, and that was 17, or 1627. So you find that's a Bible verse, but you find in Virginia they were having the same trouble. And Governor John Smith reminded them of 2 Thessalonians 3.10, because in Virginia they weren't working. They were waiting for the king to send the supplies, and they, they're starving to death. They literally went through uh, what they call the starving time. About 80% of the population starved to death waiting for food to arrive. They didn't do nothing themselves. They're just waiting for it to come because that's what socialism does. And he, he read to them out of 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that says, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's the new law in Jamestown. And you're going to work. Or, and a lot of them said, I'm not working. I'm waiting for the king to send stuff. They literally took a whip and had to whip people to start getting them to work to save their own lives. I mean, that's how lazy we had become. And so if you look at the free market system, First Thessalon Thessalonians 3.10, 1 Timothy 5.8, Matthew 25, Luke 19, and Matthew 20 are the five Bible verses that built the free market system that America's used since 1627. That's an institution. That's not our faith. That's our institution. Every American has benefited from that system. You don't have to be a Christian to benefit from biblical values. I don't think Franklin was a Christian in any way, shape, fashion, or form. The last writing he did on his religious faith was three months before he died, and he was not a Christian at that point. Maybe he became one later. But even Franklin used the Bible like crazy because it produced the best culture, the best society. We understood that. You don't have to be a Christian to be in a Christian nation. Christian principles provide something that everybody wants. He continued. He said, especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young, it is the best school book in the world. I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book. Best school book in the world? That's unconstitutional. You can't do that. Yeah, we did. Back here you have Ulysses S. Grant. He was the president in 1876. Ulysses S. Grant was there for the centennial of America. So he came out with this card, 1776, birth of America, 1876, centennial. And that's why it says centennial here. It says, message of President Grant. Message of President Grant to the children and youth of the United States. And here's his message. I'll put it up in larger letters. He says, hold fast to the Bible as a sheet anchor of your liberties. 
To the influence of this book, we're indebted for all the progress made in true civilization, and to this we must look as our guide in the future. That's his message to the young people of America. If you want this thing to last, the Bible is the only way it's going to do it. This is the President of the United States. You see, this is what we had for so long. And going back to Benjamin Rush, I told you he's one of the three most notable founding fathers. Let me credential him for a minute. Signed the Declaration, ratified the Constitution, served in three different presidential administrations. He's the most famous physician in American history. To this day, he's called the father of American medicine. He trained the first black physicians. He also started five universities. He also started academic education for women. He also started the first abolition society, became the national leader of the national abolition movement. He also started the first Bible society in America. He started the Sunday school movement in America. I'm just, the guy's unbelievable what he did and just go through his credentials. And he's called the father of public schools under the constitution because of a piece he did in 1790. He said, you know, we've been 13 nations for a long time. Now we're one nation. What do we need to teach in schools to remain a nation? Then after he did that in 1790, in 1791, he came out with a piece called the use of the Bible in schools. And in this piece in 1791, he said, here's a dozen reasons we will never take the Bible out of public schools in America. Here's a dozen reasons the Bible will always be the basis of public education. And this is one of the things he pointed out. He said, the great enemy of the salvation of man, in my opinion, never invented a more effectual means of extinguishing Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible at schools. Now, it's interesting how many Christians I talk to today say, oh, no, no, we shouldn't have the Bible in public schools. If you want the Bible in schools, have a Christian school. Bible in public schools. This is the best book for freedom, best book for economics, best book for self-government, best book for medicine, best book for everything. And that's why we would never take it out of schools. We're too smart to take it out of schools. Significantly, we have a case in 1844 at the U.S. Supreme Court called Vidal versus Gerard's Executors. It came out of the state of Pennsylvania. There was a school in Philadelphia, a government-run, government-operated school that said, we don't think we're going to teach the Bible anymore. That case went to the Supreme Court because they're not teaching the Bible. And at the U.S. Supreme Court, in an 8-0 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, wait a minute. If you're a government-run, government-operated school, you will teach the Bible. We're not going to fund any school that won't teach the Bible. If you don't want to teach the Bible, go be a private school. You can do what you want over there. But if it's going to be a public... U.S. Supreme Court. Now, by the way, you all got that in your history books when you went through school, right? You all saw that? No. What we see is what came out in 1963. 1963 in Abney, Shemp, and Murray Corlett, this is the first time in America's history that they took the Bible out of schools. They took the Bible out of schools. Why would they take the Bible out of schools if we have all this earlier stuff? I've been involved in 13 cases U.S. Supreme Court. I was involved in a case this year. We're already involved in a case for next term at the Supreme Court. And if you want to know why the court does what it did, why did the court say you can't have the Bible in schools? Go back and read the court decision. And if you go back and read the court decision, you will find that this court said taking the Bible out of public schools, they said, was without legal or historical precedent. And that's a big admission. What we're doing right now is pure, raw judicial activism. There's no historical or legal reason for taking the Bible. Then why did you take it out? Read the decision. They said, if portions of the New Testament were read without explanation, they could be and had been psychologically harmful to the child. In all your great wisdom, you think the Bible causes brain damage. May I suggest that we've suffered massive brain damage since we've taken the Bible out of schools? And just, I'm a cowboy from Texas. Got the ranch, got the horses and the cattle and the pickup and everything that goes with it. Love being a cowboy. You may not like cowboys. You may not know anything about that life at all. It does not matter. 
I can take you to the ranch in Texas. I can put you behind my cattle herd and every single one of you can tell me the gender of every critter that I've got in that cattle herd. <laughs> it's, and you will find that there are only two genders. You're gonna say, oh, there's a male and there's a female. Bible says, and God made them male and female. Four times it says that. Last month in corporate training, LGBTQIA plus movement does a lot of corporate training. And last month they pointed out to all the corporate leaders that there's now 150 different genders in America. That's serious brain damage, okay? So this is where the nonsense really gets started is back because, and see the other thing that Benjamin Rush pointed out about this, Benjamin Rush said, the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in his present state than any book in the world. Let me give you three examples. This guy's named Matthew Maury. He was born in 1806. He grew up listening to speeches of Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, etc. He loved the sea and he joined the Navy. He went to sea as a midshipman in the Navy. He became an officer in the Navy, became a captain in the Navy, became one of the best captains in the Navy. And one day he was ashore and he was in a stagecoach with 12 other people, 13 in the stagecoach. And that stagecoach slipped off an embankment and rolled down the hill. Everybody's fine except him. It crushed his leg, broke his hip, broke all sorts of stuff. And it never grew back right. Given the medicine back then, it never got back right. So he couldn't ever go back to sea because he couldn't keep his balance. But he loved the sea. It was his passion. So he heads naval research, does all this naval research on the sea. And it's interesting that he is called the father of oceanography because he's the guy who discovered that there are jet streams in the ocean. That if you will move your ship over here about two miles, you'll get to Europe in half the time everybody else does. And by the way, think about the technology back then. How did you know there were jet streams in the ocean? And by the way, if you doubt that there are jet streams in the ocean, just watch Finding Nemo, really easy. You'll see the jet streams in the ocean. How did he find the jet streams in the ocean? How did he map them? Now, this is a big chart. When you look at his charts, I mean, every two or three miles, he has where the jet streams are and, and how you get in those streams. And what he did with that, coming out with that chart, and what he did, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but what he did when he came out that chart, it cut travel time in half. And so now, as a shipping guy, you can get twice as many trips in, means you bring twice as much back, twice as much you can sell. Your prosperity goes up, but now that you're bringing more back, prices go down because supply and demand. So when prices go down, there's more income left over. So the prosperity of the nation just started rising just exponentially as a result of, of what happened with, with this map. Now, how in the world did he come up with that given the technology of that day? In his autobiography, he tells us, he said that he was homesick one day and he asked his family to read the Bible out loud to them, and they did. And it was particularly Psalm 8 that caught his attention. It says, Lord, thou madest man to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, and the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. He said, whoa, read that again. And he had them read it over and over because it said, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. I've been on the sea my whole life. I've never seen paths of the sea. Read that again. And what he said, he wrote, he said, if God said there are paths in the sea, then there are paths in the sea and I'm going to find them. And so that's what got him started on finding these pathways through the sea. Also, that's not the only verse that, that set him off and resulted in big changes for the rest of us. He points to what happened with Ecclesiastes 1.6. In Ecclesiastes 1.6, the Bible says, the wind goes toward the south and turns around toward the north. The wind whirls about continually and goes again on a circuit. There's a circuit for the wind, really? And he found that, yep, there's a circuit and it goes one way in one hemisphere, goes the opposite way in the other hemisphere. 
he was able to figure out the circuits of the wind, and as a result, he could predict weather. So he's called the father of naval meteorology. Now think about accurate weather prediction in the 1800s, 1840s and 50s. Are you kidding me? But he would say, hey, guys, see the clouds there? Do not sail this week. It's a really bad day. I mean, he is unbelievable. He just revolutionized the whole world. Scientists today that, that study science, they consider him the most famous scientist in American history. Now, you haven't seen him in your textbooks. And there's a lot of monuments to him across America. And if you go to any of the monuments built to Matthew Maury, first off, we'll say, who's Matthew Maury? And the second thing we'll say, oh, look at that. By every statue, it always shows sitting beside him in every statue, it has the Bible because that was the source of his scientific ideas. Now, I do a presentation I have on science. It's amazing how many guys back in the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s made breakthroughs in science off specific Bible verses. Before we had any of the technology we had, we found all sorts of things like what he did. Jet streams in the air, jet streams in the ocean, really? Yeah, Bible told him that. So that's one example. Another guy I would point to is a guy named James Kent. He's called the father of American jurisprudence. He really, he and, and, and Joseph Story helped set up the jurisprudence system in America, judges. And one of the things we had back in the day was circuit courts. Now, we still have circuit courts in states. Every state has a circuit court. But go back to the original Supreme Court. You think of the Supreme Court today, there's the Fourth Circuit and the Third Circuit and the Seventh Circuit and the Eighth Circuit. And there's a Supreme Court justice over every circuit. Back in the day, you didn't go to Washington, D.C. for court. The judge went out to every state. So there's a judge that would leave from the Supreme Court, would go down to Georgia and ride all around Georgia holding all the cases. There was one that would ride over to New York and do all of New York. There was one that would ride down to Virginia, do all of Virginia. Those were circuit court judges, and that's what we had back then. Now, today we do it electronically. We still have the residuals of circuit courts. But this concept of circuit judges, that was really unusual. Try finding other nations doing that. How come we did it? Well, he says it came out of 1 Samuel 7, verses 15 and 16, where it says, And Samuel judged Israel, and Samuel rode the circuit from Gilgal to Mitzvah all the other towns. Oh, so Samuel's a judge, and he gets on his horse, and he rides to all the people and goes to all the different towns and holds court in the towns. That's why we had circuit judges came out of that passage. And if you go to Ben Franklin, Ben Franklin is the guy who created the first healthcare system in America, founded the first hospital in America, 1751. Why did he found the first hospital? On the logo that he created for the hospital, it cites Luke 10:35 as the reason for the first hospital in America. See, the Bible was the basis of so much of our institutions, not just our faith. It's what shaped our culture. It's what shaped so much. And so that's why Franklin Roosevelt said, in the formative days of the Republic, the directing influence the Bible exercised on the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident. Is it really? Is it conspicuously evident today? Now I will point out, this is a liberal progressive Democrat and nobody questioned the Bible shaped everything we did. Nobody questioned that that was part of the textbooks. Nobody questioned that this is what we did. Nobody questioned that we had the Bible in schools. See, even on the opposite political side, he continues, he said, we cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning the place the Bible is occupied in shaping the advances of the Republic. There's no way you can talk about America being what she is without talking about the Bible unless you are an American today. And if you've been through American public education, Bible's got nothing to do with it, but that's not the way it had been. So when you look back to where we were then, John Quincy Adams, I used him earlier, John Quincy Adams wrote a book for 10-year-old Americans to show them how to read through the Bible from cover to cover once every year. He said, 
Kids, this is what we all do in America. We read the Bible cover to cover once every year, and you need to know about this, and you need to do it too. So the President of the United States writes a book for 10-year-old Americans. And by the way, if you don't read the Bible cover to cover, let me encourage you to do that. Let me encourage you that 12 months from now, you're going to have finished the Bible, read it from cover to cover. This is what we did in America. This is what Franklin, everybody else, this is what happened. So he tells the 10-year-olds, he says, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated on as the Bible. He says, I myself for many years have made it a practice to read the Bible once every year. We all do that. He says, and I've always endeavored to read with the same spirit, which I now recommend to you. You're 10 years old. You need to be reading the Bible from cover to cover. And I'm going to recommend to you how you get the most out of your Bible reading. This is, this is what I do. He says, I always read it with the intention and desire that may contribute to my advance in wisdom and virtue. I don't read the Bible as a spiritual devotional book. I don't read it to get blessed. I read it to see what it will do to change my thinking, my wisdom, what it will do to change my behavior, my virtue. He went through the Bible uh, at least 68 times, probably closer to 85 or 90. Uh, he went through it every year. He lived to be 80 years old. He kept a diary for 68 years, starting when he was 11 years old. And you'll find that he goes through it every year. And in addition to what the Lord shows him in his daily Bible readings, it's a lot of fun to read his diary. You'll also find that at the start of each year, he would take a theme and say, as I go through the Bible this year, here's what I'm looking for. And one year, as I go through the Bible this year, what I'm looking for is any Bible verse I can find on banking and finance. And that's what he sought to search for that year. Next year, I'm looking for any verse I can find on criminal justice and due process. And that's what he read for the year. So he's always taking a theme in addition to what he sees every day. And that was his goal. He said, kids, this is the way you need to read the Bible. Look at a practical book. And by the way, if you ever get in a federal court practicing law, you have what's called federal practice and procedure. It's dozens of volumes of how to practice law in federal courts, different areas, different categories. You're practicing this kind of law or whatever. And it's interesting that in volume 30, and this, I learned this first from Justice Stephen Breyer, who's one of the most secular justice Supreme Court history. And the decision he wrote, he said, well, we all know that the due process rights all came out of the Bible. Do we really? He said so. And I thought, where is that? And due process rights is the fourth through the eighth amendment, all, all these different rights. And so his footnote takes you to volume 30 of federal practice and procedure. And in volume 30 of federal practice and procedure, there's nearly 20 pages on the Bible verses that created the due, due process clauses. For example, the right to confront your accuser is Proverbs 18:17. The right to compel witnesses, excuse me, the right to confront your accuser is John 8:10. The right to compel witnesses in your behalf is Proverbs 18, 17. Uh, the right to testify in your own defense is Acts 22, 1. I mean, all this is federal practice and procedure, and they're quoting all the Bible verses that shape the, the, bill, the due process and the Bill of Rights. I'd never seen that, and it was in a federal law book. So this is what he's talking about. We, we always look for practical application with it, and significantly, that's what we saw in schools. Now, he was talking to 10-year-olds. To that would be what we would call third and fourth grade. All the states, including Indiana, when it was a territory, Indiana was a state, you have records on education in your state. Uh, the first education law passed for the Indiana Territory goes back to 1787. It was repassed in 1785, is repassed, oh, excuse me, passed in 1787, repassed in 1789, signed by George Washington, August 1789, and it talked about what had to be done in education here. So you have records on education that date all the way back to territorial days, all the way to every state does. And so you can go read the public education records of any state. And I just want to show you, I just picked New Jersey for grins. 
So New Jersey, I want you to see what was happening in public schools in New Jersey in 1816. This is the report on public schools in New Jersey, 1816. Again, you can pick any state. 1816, this part of the report is talking about what we're doing in the first and second grades. So first and second grades, it says, all the scholars of the first and second classes commit to memory portions of the New Testament or Psalms, a lesson of the catechism, several hymns, and the text of the preceding Sabbath. All the first and second graders are memorizing this. What are the texts of the preceding Sabbath? Now, whatever Micah talked about in church on Sunday, we're going to memorize all those Bible verses during the week. Really? So, we're talking public schools here, right? Now, you're always going to have some kids that are faster than other kids, no question about it. And they talked about one of the kids who was really a sharp kid. It says, one of the scholars who committed to memory the book of John and the first 30 Psalms together with the 119th Psalm. First and second grader has done that? Yeah, but he's a smart one. The others aren't that smart. The others, it says the majority have committed to memory the gospel by John. So all the first and second graders have memorized the gospel of John, but we have one kid that added 30 chapters of Psalms and Psalm 119, but everybody does the gospel of John. I don't know a single Christian I've met who's memorized the gospel of John. And this is second grade, first grade, public schools in New Jersey. This is what we did in America for years. And I can show you state after state after state. This is common stuff. I just got a book that actually has the laws of all the states, I think, in 1865, which is 36 states or 38 states, and all the states. This is, this is what we did. So this is common stuff, but today we don't do that, and that's where we have a real biblical literacy. This is what affects our politics. Because, you see, when you look at God's institutions, most of us will agree that God created three institutions. God created the family. Uh, the families in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, you have Adam, you have Eve, you have children. God said this is good. God ordained the family. God ordained civil government. And the way God ordained civil government, you remember that Cain killed Abel and started, that started the rampage on, on the earth. I mean, the rape and the pillage and, and the plunder and the murder and the theft. And God says, let's just wipe it out and start again. So here came the flood. Noah and his family get off the ark, and God says, we're not going to do this anymore. And he gave Noah what are called the Noahide laws in Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, he gave him seven laws that institute civil government. The first law says, Noah, here's what's to be done with murderers. Here's what's to be done with thieves. This is the second law. And it goes through the, the seven laws, and they're civil laws. So God ordained civil government. That is his institution. He created it. There is no record of any government existing prior to that with Noah, either in secular records or in religious records. Noah's the first government in the history of the world, and it's God gave it to him. And then we, have, we know that God ordained the church, and that's really in the book of Exodus. That's a type and shadow, because Exodus, you have the congregation, you have the tabernacle, the people gather together and assemble, and God gives all the instructions. And so that's a type and shadow of the church. We know that these three are God's institutions. And Christians are pretty aware of family and church, not necessarily aware as aware of government. But we were in the previous years when we studied the Bible all the time. If you go back to the guys who signed the Declaration of Independence, it's striking that the single work cited most often in the era of independence was a work by John Locke called The Two Treatises of Government. Matter of fact, Richard Henry Lee is the founding father who made the motion that we separate from Great Britain, which resulted in the Declaration of Independence. He signed the Declaration of Independence. He said, quote, we copied the Declaration out of Locke's Two Treatises on Government. Now, this is a document on civil government and it's less than an inch thick, less than 400 pages long. I have the original, but they've reprinted it. It's available. You can see it, read it online. You can get a book. 
It, cites, it references the Bible more than 1,500 times to show the proper operation of civil government. So why would you say that government's secular? Because we hear that all the time. We hear leaders say, oh, government's secular. God didn't deal with that. Then what do you do with 1,500 references? Just because we're biblically illiterate today doesn't mean God didn't reference that. And we knew that back at a period of time when we really studied the Bible more. So what happens today is we're not necessarily very good on all three institutions. We do more here and here than we do here. And that's being a two-thirds Christian. It's like, you know, I like two of the three institutions, I don't like the other. We really can't do that. You can't leave government out of it, and that's what a lot of Christians today do. We need to be three-thirds Christians. God has clear instructions in all of these areas, and so we have to be engaged in all of these areas. Now, as you talk about being engaged in these areas, going back to Benjamin Rush, Benjamin Rush, I told you, he's called the father of public schools under the Constitution because the piece he wrote in 1790. I showed you the 1791 piece. Here's the 1790 piece. It's called On the Mode of Education Proper in a Republic. Now that we're a republic, we're no longer 13 nations, we're one, what do we have to teach in our public schools to stay a nation? And so he goes through and lists it. And he says the purpose of public education is threefold. He said the number one purpose of public education in America is to teach students to love and serve God. He said the number two purpose of public education in America is to teach students to love and serve their country. He said the number three purpose of public education in America is to teach students to love and serve their family. Now. If you look at that, nearly every Christian I know would object to that and say, no, 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 it should be God and then it should be family and it should be country because family is so much more important. And he says, no, you're wrong. It should be God, it should be country and it should be family because he pointed out that if you ever lose control of your country, your country would become the great enemy of the family, which is what we're seeing right now. If you didn't see it on Monday, um, last Monday, a week ago now, the law just passed in California, signed by the governor, Newsom signs bill that removes children from parents who oppose transgender treatments. You'll lose your kids. The state will take your kids if you oppose transgender. The state is the enemy of the family. And this is where so much of the stuff is coming from. And it's because we, we don't control the state anymore. We lost control of it. We're not engaged in that arena. Uh, and, and that's what we have to get back into. So we've got to be involved in that countryside. And this is what we're seeing the schools, even Schools that we thought were rural schools pretty good, we're finding out that, man, this is a cesspool of problems here. Even the rural schools have all these books in the libraries that, you know, we wouldn't admit anywhere. And, and gender transition closets, really? And, and, and all the stuff going on? Yeah, it's, it's going on. And that's why we're seeing people run for school boards in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime. Now, running for school boards means local elections. And as you look at local elections, stats are pretty interesting. Um, to vote in America, there's three requirements, two constitutional requirements, one statutory requirement. The two constitutional requirements are you got to be 18 years old and you got to be a legal citizen. If you can do that, 100% of 18-year-olds who are legal citizens can vote. The statutory requirement says you have to register to vote. That way we make sure you don't vote seven times or somebody doesn't vote seven times for you. Statutory requirements where it breaks down. Only 65.3% of adult Americans are registered to vote. We have roughly 100 million Americans who said, I don't care what happens in the nation, I ain't gonna be part of it at all. That includes 40 million evangelical Christians who have not even registered to vote. Do you know how different the country might look today if we had that 40 million being salt and light and that civil, no, but we don't do politics. You haven't read the Bible because if you read the Bible, particularly if you read Hebrews 11, the, that faith hall of fame, look at how many people God holds up our heroes that were involved in government. I mean, just take Daniel and go through Moses and go through all those folks. And so what happens here, 
when you look at this 65%, there's two, two different voting cycles we have. The first is where we have the highest voter turnout for presidential elections. The, in the last 11 presidential elections, the average voter turnout is 54% of registered voters vote. But that's not 54% of adults, that's 54% of 65.3%, which means 36% of adults actually vote for president. It takes half of that to win, which is 18%. The other type of election is what we're having this year. It's an off-year election. In off-year elections, we elect our governors and our U.S. senators and our state legislators and federal legislators. For the last 21 off-year elections, the average voter turnout has been 38%. But that's 38% of 65%, which is 26% that actually vote for that and takes half of that to win. So what you're looking at is in the last 11 presidential elections, one out of, eight Amer- one out of five Americans chooses the president of the United States. Four out of five Americans did not choose the president in the last 11 elections. When it gets to governors and senators and legislators, it's one out of eight Americans that chooses our governors, senators, and legislators. Seven out of eight did not choose them. So we have a very non-involved, unparticipatory process right now by our own choice. And when you get to the local elections, it's usually only about a 6% turnout, but that's 6% of registered voters, which is 4% of actual voters, and it takes half of that to win. Let me give you an example. If you go to Los Angeles, Los Angeles is the second largest city in the United States. Los Angeles, the population of the city of Los Angeles is larger than the population of 23 separate individual states. So if you're Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, that's like being a governor in 23 states. And Eric Garcetti, man, is he faith hostile. Remember COVID, shut everything down, didn't shut anything down except the churches. Churches, they're the ones that have to go. We can't have churches, they're definitely not essential. All the rest of the stuff is. I mean, he's been faith hostile and he brags about the fact he was elected mayor of Los Angeles with a 2.9% of the vote. I know enough churches in Los Angeles, they could have anybody they wanted for mayor, but they've got a guy who hates them. And you have the same thing that happened in Houston. Houston's the fourth largest city in the nation. It's the largest population of 20 states. And they elected Anise Parker as mayor with 3.3% of the vote. She's the first open lesbian mayor of Houston. She said, you know, I just got a law passed in city that if you say marriage between a man and a woman, that is now a hate crime and I've got you. And if you say that, I've now, and she went after pastors all over the city. There's enough churches in Houston. They can have anybody they want to for mayor. And that's what they had because they didn't do anything, get involved. And now they're involved in these lawsuits, et cetera. So you look at local elections. Chad mentioned what happened in Virginia. There's tens of thousands of churches in Virginia and faith wins. We got involved there and 312 churches out of tens of thousands. He mentioned they found in the pews 77,000 people who had never registered, never voted, and none of them were large churches. They were all community churches, no, not mega churches. So you found in there 77,000 people never registered, they voted, and as he pointed out, Yonkin wins by 64,500. Next thing is 2 Timothy 2.5 says, no one can be crowned a winner unless they run according to the rules. What are the rules of elections? Don't have a clue. That's where 1,343 said, we want to learn. And they got involved and those 1,343, 300 state certified election officials, 1,043 uh, were poll watchers and they identified 5.2% of the vote as being fraudulent. Now, if you take five, Chad mentioned 17 people in, in a cow pasture, not even a structure there. If you take 5.2% fraudulent off, you'll win a whole lot of elections if you take 5.2% fraudulent vote out. And we're doing this in, in states across the nation. As a matter of fact, as you go to uh, Michigan just last week, we heard in Michigan with all we're doing there in voter integrity stuff, 
just having eyes on the process. You know, we're told to be salt and light, and light is just shining light, just letting it be seen. And just simply being in the room where votes are being counted, it's amazing. In, in Virginia, when poll watchers stepped into three county clerks, three different counties, three county clerks resigned from office just because someone was going to be watching what they were doing. That kind of says something. You know, so just be in light. Just show up. Maybe you don't see anything. Great. Maybe you solved everything because they're not going to do it while you're watching. So what happened to Faith, Faith Wins with, in, in, Daniel, in Michigan, we found a guy named Jason, Jason Daniel who voted twice in 2020. Now, that's not good, but that's definitely not the story. Jason Daniel was born in 1850, <laughs> Civil War vet. We're going to Michigan tonight. I'm looking, I've never met anyone 172 years old. I'm looking forward to meeting a guy 172 years old. So this, uh, you know, voting twice, but you see, it's interesting up in Michigan, the Secretary of State is suing to keep all the dead people on the rolls. At this point, there are more than 20,000 people on the rolls who have been dead for more than 20 years. Take them off. No, that's a good 40,000 votes. Can't take those off. It's crazy. And this is nothing new. Don't think that this is something that we're facing our generation. This is Harper's Weekly picture from back in 1864. Harper's Weekly, uh, there's people getting the names off of tombstones so they can vote in the next election. Dead people have been voting for a long time in America. There is fraud every single election that happens because people are involved and there's always people who think the end justifies the means, the Machiavellian philosophy. That's why Christians have to be involved in every single one of these, these things. So looking at it, let me show you some local headlines. Canada's opposing critical race theory, COVID-19 mandates win Minnesota school board. Minnesota is not a conservative place at all. And yet churches got involved in Minnesota and took school boards all over Minnesota. I love this one out of New Jersey. 19-year-old who saw a senior year disrupted by COVID shutdowns unseats the incumbent in school board race. So this, this kid lost his senior year and said, I'm running against you. You're not going to do that to me. He beat the incumbent by 17 points. And I will point out it is really nice to finally have some adults on the school board in New Jersey. It's really good. This is Denver. Um, this one, Colorado Springs. There's four school boards in Colorado Springs. 1,500 churches got together in Colorado, took 78 school boards. They took the Denver, and Denver, I mean, that is hardcore, secular, progressive blue. And now solid Christians have the school board in Denver. Think what that means for hundreds of thousands of kids who will have a different approach to what they're being taught and what they're not going to be taught. Same thing, took all four school boards in Colorado Springs, those are the two largest cities in, in the state. Again, churches got involved. Same thing in Wichita, three out of four in Wichita, up here in Treasure Valley, that's Boise. That's the craziest city in Idaho. Churches got involved, took the school board in Boise. Uh, Dallas, 51 churches got together in Dallas. There were 15 school board positions in Dallas, and they won all 15. They got 15 out of 15 in Dallas. Dallas is, you know, they're from Texas, but they're the crazy part of Texas. They are the really, the, and we've got the school board in Dallas now, you know, and that's a, a massive city. Uh, same thing in Houston, uh, 2.3 million people in Houston, churches got together in Houston, took all the school board seats. 2.3 million people in Houston, and they took the school board seats, average of only 5,000 votes cast in a school board seat. There's individual churches down there with 10 to 15,000. Getting Christians involved, took all sorts of things in Houston. 
Uh, same thing in Fort Worth. They took 20 out of 21 seats in Fort Worth. Churches got together. Fort Worth, the same uh, just a, a, a month ago. Uh, Miami-Dade County, they got 25 out of 30 school board seats in Miami-Dade County. See, Christians are starting to show up again, and this is going to make a difference in the nonsense that we've been teaching for the last 20 years that most of us weren't even aware was being taught for the last 20 years, and it's now coming out. So this is what we're seeing all over the nation. And so as you look at things like this, the challenge is we've got to become three-thirds Christians. We've got to get back in this arena. We've we got to help our, our brethren understand that this is not a secular arena. Uh, God is over all of this. He's got specific instructions on how government's supposed to work. And that's, again, why I encourage every one of us, we need to really get back into reading the Scripture on a daily basis. We, we need that kind of food that we had in previous generations that helped us to think right about so many issues. And Bible memory, you know, maybe someday we can be as smart as a first grader in New Jersey, you know, know as much of the Bible in New Jersey. But we, we really do need to get back to these as institutions, as the things that we do to turn these institutions around. So if this is new to you, we've got a book on the back table back there called The American Story, which goes through all this kind of history. Uh, the Founder's Bible actually goes through all the, the various Bible verses that were used to build the institutions in America, the culture of America. So you're welcome to see that back. Chad, up to you, bro. Y'all give David a hand. Now, I realize y'all knew most of that. I, I get it. Uh, and I, you want to get the Founders, the Founders Bible is phenomenal. Uh, we bought the uh, leather edition for all four of our kids for Christmas, going to have their name put on it. The American Story just finished my second reading. Short little chapters. Read it to your kids. Read it to your grandkids. They're not getting this stuff, y'all. They are not hearing this. No wonder there's so many America haters out there. If all they hear is just bad, it's bad, it's bad. Here's the other thing I want to tell you, and I don't know if my mic's on. I turned it on here, y'all, but I don't know if it's on wherever. I got a green light, so I don't know if it's on back there or not, but I got a big mouth according to my wife and kids. When we started working in Virginia, we, we didn't have an electoral outcome desire. It was the same thing we've been doing was Christians, wake up, get involved. And, and all my political buddies in D.C. mocked me. They, they said, what are you doing in Virginia? You can't make a difference. It's too far gone. It's a liberal state, it's a blue state. It'd become a, an experimentation station for the school boards, for the legislature. I mean, how do you pass a law to let babies die comfortably? Seriously, how, how, how wicked can you be? And yet they did it. And so I, we just did our deal. We just, we had seven pastors that met in a room in January, 2021. Biken knows this story. I told this story in Dallas, seven pastors that I just said, look, I'm going to pay your expenses. I'm going to have Chick-fil-A sandwich meals. I'll fund that. Then I'm going to bring David and Cheryl around. We'll go to bigger meetings. Y'all go talk. Can you find 10 pastors who've never heard this message? That is all I said a thousand times over and over and over and over and over. 312 churches, and I, like David said, I don't think any more mega churches. When, when it got down to it, you would not believe if I had gotten between most of the political hacks and a television camera, I'd have been injured. Because they all want to take credit. And somebody, I, I, I had a donor, the governor there gave my cell phone number to some people in the state called New Jersey. Y'all heard about it, it's, it's uh, the People's Republic pretty much. 
And I went and did a Jewish meeting with 17 rabbis and 30 other Jewish leaders in a kosher restaurant in Lakewood, New Jersey. And the rabbi, the key rabbi is a direct descendant of Aaron. Nathan, that's like the Aaron. Y'all with me? Um, the guy has always voted secularly and for the left and all that kind of thing. The governor of New Jersey singled him out as he wouldn't close the synagogue. He was like, we have a mandate to meet and assemble and worship the Lord. The, the police officers came and pulled him down by his beard to the concrete. A young rabbi showed me the video and he came up and said, you know, we're not voting that way anymore, Chad. I like what you're talking about. And we didn't tell them who to vote for, how to vote. But one of the people, when they flew me up to New Jersey, I met with some donors. They said, why do you think you guys deserve credit for Virginia? I, I said, look here, man. I was fine in South Carolina. It's warmer there. I, you, you call me. We don't care about the credit. We're losing our country, y'all. We're losing our country to people. They hate you, but they really hate him. That's what this is about. They hate truth, they hate him, and they cannot stand it. Instead of having some honorable debate and civil discourse, no, 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 they gotta shut you out. I believe God's given us a chance to reemerge. And that whole 10 months in Virginia, we're trying to duplicate that in a lot of states. It's, it's not about a party, it's not about a politician, it's certainly not about a personality. It's about you and me not quitting and re-emerging and inserting ourselves back into the culture so that when you're sitting around a room, I tell people if my mama or my two grandmamas had been in the room when some knucklehead said, ooh, what a great idea. If a boy feels like a girl today, he should go to the bathroom with the girls. You know, you can feel like a doorknob and that doesn't change the truth. But my mama and my grandmamas would have grabbed a chair and whopped somebody upside the head with that stupid comment. This is insanity. And that's just a piece of the insanity. I told a media person the other day, Christians care about more than life and they care about more than marriage. They, they care these drugs coming across the border and they care about terrorism and they care about the Middle East being in disarray. They care about international wars. They care about human trafficking. They, we should care about all this stuff. Dr. Falwell said in the 80s, we, our problem is we win, we quit, we lose, we quit. Y'all, we gotta quit quitting. Quit quitting. We're not looking for a perfect candidate. I know so many Christians, well, this candidate does this, this candidate does that. You know, I get it. I had one the other day as a Senate candidate came up and asked my personal opinion. Well, he paid for an abortion. Uh, okay, let's say he did. He says he didn't. Let's say he did. He paid for an abortion with his money. This other candidate wants to pay for all abortions with your money. <laughs> we got to think again. That's what David's talk teaches us to think again. Look, we need your help. Uh, and if it hadn't been for Micah and Nathan and we, we said, how do we, how do we work this in? We're just trying to get everywhere because I want to expose them to David. I want to let David's truth get out there because this stuff's unbelievable, right? You're like, wow, I wish I'd known this. <laughs> like I said, I, all the people who want to whine and complain about America and, and yet no, they won't leave. What an awesome place. Not perfect because there are human beings here. Therefore, if they're humans, you'll always know there's sin present. That, that's just the way it is. We live in a fallen world and until Jesus comes again, we won't reach perfection, not here on earth. So what we're supposed to do is walk in his way and follow his path and follow his commandments. And engagement sure ought to be one of them. Be in salt and light. We wanna get you involved. What we're doing is we have one pastor who just, he's semi-retired, he's bivocational. He, he took this, he just took it, ran with it. 
He went into the election commission in, in Virginia and, and uh, he started, he had read the law. And he goes and sees the person running the election commission and the guy said, we don't do it that way, we don't do it that way. And, and Pastor Tom said, how long have you been doing this? The guy said, 35 years. Tom said, you've been breaking Virginia state law for 35 years? And the guy said, you read the law? Tom says, right here on my tablet. And he said, you wanna be on the election commission? Tom got on the board. The people that quit, those are, our, those are firsthand stories from us. I love going to these other conferences. Everybody's telling our stories because that was my Faith Wins team in Virginia on the ground. That was those people. You know what? It wasn't a team. It was Calvary Baptist and Life Church and such a Methodist. It was all these churches of people who just said, I am sick and tired of my kids being exposed to this nonsense. This is disgusting. This is filth. And we cannot have it. It defies common sense. We're being told we're the bad guy for saying it's a bad thing. We did not plan on doing poll workers. All we're doing is connecting you to the county people who do this work. That's all we're doing. Pastor Tom, when you hit this QR code, and nobody understands QR codes if you're over 14. So, <laughs> but if you hold your camera up to that, like you're gonna take a picture, it'll take you to our website. I don't have time to bug you or bother you. We will get your email and Pastor Tom or somebody on his team will make sure you get put in the precinct in the county so you can go be a poll watcher, a poll worker in whatever state. I think we now, our pastors have now recruited poll watchers in 44 states. We had Maine, we haven't done a thing in Maine. So people are sharing this, and I know there are a lot of groups that want to do this. And look, my time machine doesn't work. I can't fix anything in the back whether I like it or not. I, I, my time machine's broken. What I need to do is go do this. And we spend far too much time talking about this. We can't fix, let's go fix this. And I believe Christian involvement is the big deal. And I gotta tell you, one of the least things we should do as Christians is get involved and go work the polls. It would stun you the kind of things that you would see just by being there and being involved and you'd feel like a great patriotic American. So please hit the QR code. Again, I just wanna tell you, I, I'm so proud of your pastor leadership. I mean, Nathan uh, running the whole thing with Life Church and Micah here. Uh, that's what's missing. Ronald Reagan said in 1980 when the country was going to heck in a handbasket, there's nothing going on that cannot be fixed with proper leadership. That's what we want to do. I appreciate your leadership. God bless y'all. Thanks for having us. Love you, honor, man. Thank you. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. I hope you guys were so blessed. I know I was. I, and if you're, if you're like me, I'm sitting back. I, I feel like I know American history pretty well. I know Nathan, you feel like you know American history pretty well. But then you would see something like that, and you're like, I don't know American history very well. <laughs> And I, I'm like, okay, I got to remember all these things. I'm trying to take notes on my phone real fast, right? But what we're going to do is this, uh, we, we had Chad and David on the Jesus, Sex, and Politics podcast about a half hour prior to the start of this. So we're going to have that, and then we're going to put this on the podcast as well. This is going to be on our website. So you can go back and you can dissect everything that you heard David say. So... <laughs> And then you can, you can get involved with Faith Wins. Uh, I've really gotten to know Chad over the last year, and he is a, honestly has such a heart after the Lord's. He is so focused on turning America back towards biblical values, and they're doing great things, like he said. So make sure you sign up. Uh, stop by the, the book table for David Barton, uh, and we got his lovely wife Cheryl's with him today, so you guys can say hi to Cheryl. And uh, I think we're out of the Founders Bibles. Uh, I think we sold out of them, unfortunately, but you 
can sign up to buy some more and they can send you one. I think you can get them online and all that good stuff. But uh, the American story, Nathan and I have started reading that together. That is phenomenal. And that's David and his son, Tim Barton, who Tim is a genius when it comes to American history too. They're, they wrote that together. So pick that up. You're not going to want to miss that. And, um, and then the last thing, we've got uh, Martin Struther back there from IFI, Indiana Family Institute. They're doing the local grassroots, getting school board candidates that are good constitutionally focused and biblically aligned candidates elected. Talk to Martin about what you guys can do to help him uh, here locally. Uh, and I think that's, oh, the last thing Melissa just said, break down your boxes when you throw them away and on your way out. So that will help us. We love you guys. Uh, and we'd love to see you on church here Sunday. If you don't call this your home, the church, come check it out. But hey, have a great rest of your day. Be blessed and stand for truth in our country. Well, Nathan, what an amazing afternoon. I mean, David Barton, Chad Connolly, what they're doing is just, I mean, God-inspired, and and its I, I think it's God's using it to take back our nation and get yeah, the church absolutely. engaged. So what were your thoughts as we heard David Barton just for an hour and a half there just lay it out, American history and biblical values that were infused into our, our upbringing? Well, I think, I think hope, right? It's... I, th- I think if you go back and you look at all the different times where people lose their way, what brings them back to their way? It's, it's, it's going back, knowing your identity, knowing your relationship with it, your heavenly father, where it all started. And, and the great thing is, is that we have the Bible, uh, you know, as he's driving it back going, all these men believed in the Bible, you know, I think that there's, you know, you look at how many Bible users have, are people who are reading the Bible have decreased, but there are those who stand firm and, and, and it doesn't have to be a massive number to, to light the brush fires of freedom. You know, it, it just has to, what was the number? Was it 3%? So 3%. Yeah. So there was a study shown that out of all the pastors in America, only 38% have, a uh, biblical worldview, and out of the thirty-eight percent, only two point eight percent have a uh, are engaged in the po- quote-unquote political issues of our day, and mm-hmm. or, or really care about America and and us, the nation of America, and are actually doing something about it. And so uh, that's. But to your point, it's it's the Gideon story, right? You know, God doesn't need the majority, right? And Samuel Adams said the doesn't take the majority to prevail, just takes an irate minority keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the hearts of men. And that's, and that's, yeah, I think that's what we're feeling. We're yeah. like, we're this righteous indignation that is welling up in, in a small amount of people, but it's, it's spurring on a brush fire of freedom. Yeah. We, after we were done and we were back in the green room, the, uh, I had a, a chance to just talk with him for just a second. And he showed me a, um, a presentation that he did in Dallas about what, Christian people want, and they want to be able to defend what they believe or what the, what the Bible teaches about, you know, poverty, abortion, um, taxes, you know, economic yeah, things, right? Due process. Exactly. Yeah. He went down through all these issues, you know, how does the Bible say to solve these problems? And, and they want to know that. 
you know, here at Life Church, we do the expository preaching, and we're looking for those opportunities where the text gives it to us to talk about that. We've been in First Samuel, and he lit up whenever I said oh, we're in First Samuel. He goes, "Oh my gosh, the unbelievable opportunity you have to speak to these issues in that in that book. It's true, you know. And as we go into Second Samuel, it's going to be even more true yeah. because, you know, as David is setting things up once again for 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 right governments and and right governance and and for truth in the way you can live man what an opportunity that we have these people who are saying they don't want to talk about this he's going just preach the bible yeah if you just preach the bible you'll get to these subjects and just don't be cowardly and and not talk about it it is you're supposed to teach people how to live on this earth if if we pray Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just ask yourself, what, what, what is it supposed to look like in heaven? And, and now you're praying that the kingdom is, is done. Give a vision of the revelation of what that looks like. Yeah, That's what people want. Yep. Uh, he, he speaking of First Samuel in his presentation that you just heard. I don't know if you like if you go the back and watch writer, it, the uh, circuit First Samuel seven seven starting in verse fifteen. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he used to go uh, annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mitzvah, and he judged Israel in all these places. And our our um, James Kent. Uh, he in the original U.S. Supreme Court, each justice was assigned responsibilities over a specific geographic region. While the practice still continues today, those early justices, unlike today's justices, personally traveled to the different geographic locations across the country where they Im- impaneled grand jur- juries to hear cases rather than requiring all the parties to travel to the federal capital as is done today. Counselor James Kent, considered a father of American jurisprudence, observed that the American practice of circuit riding judges had biblical precedent explaining the Jewish judges rode the circuits and Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year in circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mitzvah and judged Israel in all those places. And, and so we get literally our circuit courts are derived right from what we see right here in first Samuel seven with Samuel riding the circuit. And, and most people would say, Oh no, there's no biblical like foundations in American, American history. And this is, even just in that hour and a half presentation that you just heard with David Barton, there is Bible everywhere. Even the least religious founder, Ben Franklin, quoted scripture like nobody's business. He would be considered one of the most religious people in today's culture. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That, that, that one illustration that I, I, can't, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was the father of oceanography. Yeah. That, yeah. When, whenever that pathway, I, I, what did he say? That was Psalm 8. Yeah. Right? The paths of the the sea uh, of the ocean yeah. or the paths of the sea and that that led him to 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 investigate that yeah and that you know here's a psalm written but under the under the the inspiration of the holy spirit but probably had never traveled the the jet streams of the sea yeah right yeah but it's there and 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 the scripture is constantly being um proven to be correct in in seeing that this is this is the reality of of science science proves the great hand of god science doesn't disprove god at all it 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 points to 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 his incredible brilliance in all of this and 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 we just but there's people just like pastor mike uh he preached it at fisher's a couple weeks ago 
um, you know, people do not acknowledge God as God. He read Romans 1. Mm-hmm. People do not acknowledge God as God. But if you would... Yeah, Jeremiah 6.16, I think is so important for our, our days. And it says this, this is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Amen. And that's, you know, I think that's, that's why it's important at Life Church. We are going back and we're saying, where is the ancient paths that the good way, the God's way? And that's why some people give us a, a lot of, you know, flack for being a politically engaged church, but we know that God's way is the best way. And we know that our nation was built on God's way. Yeah. And you just heard undisputable facts that, that, that actually happened in American history that our founders said the American exceptional is going to either live or die based on whether or not we stay with God's way or we turn away from that's God's right. way. And that's what it's important for Christians and especially pastors yeah. to, to stand up and to lead, lead America back to those ancient paths of God's way, the good way. And, and the scripture says, do not move the ancient boundary stone, yeah. right? So when those ancient, ancient boundary stones were set up by those fathers all those years ago, don't move it because you want to build a parking lot. You know, don't move it for this or that. You, you've got to know why was it there. And for us just to indiscriminately say, oh, we're going to get rid of this without understanding the whys. What a mess. Yep. What a mess. Well, thanks for uh, listening to this uh, amazing. I, I, I mean, I, I thought it was amazing. I'm, I'm, it's not because Nathan it and I were amazing. talking. Yeah, it was because we had David Barton and Chad Connolly here again. Check out Chad Connolly's site uh, or his website, Faith Wins, and then uh, faithwins.org. yes, org. Uh, get your pastors and your churches involved to turn the tides of uh, of the elections and and voting biblical values. It's not about Republican or Democrat. It's about biblical Amen. voting biblical values. And then David Barton, he's got his founder's Bible. That's amazing. I was literally just reading it uh, about the circuit riders yeah. um, and that whole story of, you know, the circuits. It, it's, it's stories like that, that he puts in the Bible. He says, these are the founders. This is when they use this scripture and said this based on this scripture. And yeah. it's, it's awesome. It goes all the way through history. I mean, even up to, you know, modern day presidents that, yeah. you know, laid their hand on this passage of scripture when they took the oath of office or yeah. whatnot. So it's awesome. And then the American story. Uh, Which Dave, we're both reading right yeah, now. It's really Tremendous. good. Really, really good. And so. I'll tell you what, the first couple chapters all have to do with what leads into Thanksgiving. And so because we're before Thanksgiving, yeah. you can make your Thanksgiving really special. If you know, Stop before you pray for the food and just talk about Thanksgiving. Talk about what, what the Lord did in the founding of this nation. That's why it's my favorite holiday. Yeah, that's you cool. Know? Um, the story but, of Squanto is, is, it's, is uh, awesome. It made me cry this morning. Yeah. I, literally, I got choked up. If you don't know, story. if you don't know the story of Squanto and how God, His divine providence, literally led Squanto, a bad situation, was sold into slavery, shipped over to Europe, was set free from a, I think it was a monk, he, by, by by Catholic, yeah, monks by Catholic who, monks, who got him out. Then he went to Britain for five years. Yep. He ends up learning fluent English. Yeah. And comes back to find out that the people that he was a part of, the brutal people, were wiped out by a plague. And now that's exactly where they go to set up shop. The, 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 pilgrims. the pilgrims, pilgrims land the, the, there. The pilgrims go there, but they had been wiped out by but before the pilgrims even got there. Yeah. I mean, get the book. And Squanto, Squanto comes back and he's able to, out of nowhere... He finds these pilgrims. They're all going to die. I mean, they're just, they're they literally, don't know they, don't, how to live. they don't know how to live. And now you have this Indian 
who speaks fluent who English. speaks fluent English shows up. All of a sudden, he's like, an, it had to have been like an angelic. I mean, these these pilgrims had to think this has to be an angel. Like, how does this? How does he knows our customs? He knows our language. He can. He knows the land. He's teaching us how to survive. And I mean, it's just God's. It's God's providence. And if that wouldn't have happened, Squanta wouldn't have been sold into slavery, set free by monks, learned the culture, gone back home to the new land. We wouldn't be here right to now. To arrive exactly <laughs> on time. And he didn't have a family anymore. His people were wiped out. And he adopted them as his family. Yeah, the pilgrims. Yeah. And, oh, my gosh. I mean, I what, mean just, what a story. I mean, <laughs> holy cow. It's ama- and so that's one of the amazing stories in, in this amazing book. Just in the book. first few chapters. Yeah, so I mean, you got to get the book. It's awesome. It's awesome. Well, hey, I hope you guys were blessed today. Stay yeah, s- hey, pastors. Hey, be courageous yes be courageous and if you have a pastor and they're not courageous yet speak courage to them because they will rise to the occasion if you'll speak courage to them that's right well hey this has been jesus sex and politics be courageous i'm micah i'm nathan we talk about all those things that are going to scare you you took my line (laughs) that will scare you we'll see you next time we're not supposed to talk about (laughs)